Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Wise Guys. This is episode 16. I'm not really sure. I missed last week. Um, but I'm Dan. Yeah, where were you? Last week, I don't even remember what was happening last week. Um, I, was, I was really busy, and we were having stuff going on. I can't, honestly, I can't remember, like, three days ago, so I don't know what I was doing last week. Um, but Chris, you did a great job. I enjoyed watching the show last week. Um, and we haven't got the audio version published yet, but... Turned out good. It'll come out soon, as soon as I have time to upload it. But, uh, Chris, you're rocking a stellar mustache there, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dan. I'm just trying to emulate you as oh. the guy who always has the great beards and stuff. So, oh, I got the for beard, once, huh? actually cold in California. Uh, go figure. We went through the whole entire holiday season and had weather in the 70s and 80s. And then February, late February comes along, and it's almost springtime. And I guess that's when... The weather's supposed to turn cold here. I don't know. Strange. It felt appropriate. What temperature is it out there? Uh, it's like 65-ish. Okay, <laughs> so okay, it's not that cold, but uh, it's 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 colder than it has been. Um, definitely wearing um, heavy jacket weather for us here. Relative. Cold is a relative thing, I guess. Yeah, no, yeah, it is. Yeah, we, uh, like right now, it's in the, we're getting highs in the 60s again, and, uh, it's getting down into the 30s at night, but yeah, there was a point in, I think it was mid-January, and maybe even late December, where it was getting down into like the teens at night, and it was highs in the low 30s, and so it was not your cup of tea, I'm assuming. Oh, that's 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 cold. And, and interestingly enough, I, I was telling a few people, friends and co-workers and whatnot, oh, it's so great to have this cold weather. But, you know, when I talked to you and just now realizing that it's really not that cold you know in the grand scheme of things um yeah i mean i probably wouldn't be wanting to have weather in the teens but you know the high 30s low 40s a doable thing well yeah i mean i work i work overnight outside man those those nights sucked it was so cold it was terrible but thankfully yeah. things are looking up i've actually got the other day i wore shorts and a t-shirt at work and it was great it felt wonderful outside like was it like 60 55 i think wow dude that i mean 55 I'm, I'm wearing a jacket pants and boots with maybe two layers of socks and then like you know a double shirt and all that stuff just to make sure everything's all good uh you got the thin blood right now from being down southern california but if i was still living in florida and it was 55 i would not be dressed like that that's for sure but, you're like those people from wisconsin or you're like you know those northern states or like canada and they show up and you're you know it's like the super cold out everybody's wearing jackets and then they're like wearing flip-flops and a you know shorts and a t-shirt and you're like what weren't you born in canada i was but that doesn't you know that was a long time ago 30 plus (laughs) years ago a lot's changed but i mean you know somebody who's like constantly living there i guess the is that true is you know I, i hear that thin blood thing get thrown around is that like Actually, true is that sort of like a wives' tale. I wonder. I don't think it's true. It's more of your body just gets acclimated to the to the climate you're in. Like, gotcha. It's like when you get into a cold shower and it starts feeling kind of warm towards the end of it, and because you got used to it, and then like somebody else gets in the shower, like your wife, and she's like, "Oh my god, it's so cold!" I'm like, "Oh, it felt pretty decent to me." <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's all it is. It's, it's kind of like it's. Yeah, I guess the extreme version would be that or like getting into a pool and then you get used to it or something. But um, it's just like, you know, like when you're living 
in LA or you live in central Florida or something and it's, it's really hot. And all of a sudden you, like, if you don't run the AC constantly, you get used to it being hot and then it's not quite as bad. I mean, it's still miserable, but it's not quite as miserable as it would have been otherwise. But, uh, yeah, it's true. Come to think of it, we don't really use AC very much here, even in the summer, at least not like in, in Florida, um, living in Florida, you basically have to, unless you want to die a slow agonizing death almost uh, literally but uh <laughs> from the humidity um but it's strange like in, in southern california the temperatures are very similar but i guess because of the lack of relative humidity people just don't, don't really use their um air conditioning very frequently here people just that. windows open yeah columbia is usually really hot in the summer like I remember when you were living in Houston, I talked to you one time and you were saying it was like 94 degrees and it was so hot and it was 115 for the, like the fourth straight day here. It was, it gets, I don't know what it is. Columbia is just stupid hot. Like the, the catchphrase for the city is famously hot. There's no real explanation for it. Um, Char- yeah, Charleston's like not that bad. Greenville's not bad. None of the other surrounding areas. Atlanta's not even that hot, but it just Columbia. It's just something about where we're sitting, I guess. It just gets miserable and it's super humid because like we go up to, um, We'll go up to Asheville up in the mountains, and it can still be a fairly warm day, you know. And uh, But the humidity is not there, and it, you can walk around all day long and not break a sweat. It's the strangest thing, I guess. Is Columbia <coughs> surrounded by, like, mountains or hills or anything like that? I think there's some. I mean, it's a, kind of a hilly area. I think, yeah, it probably is down in somewhat of a valley. Not, not a deep one, but it um, it's part of, the, part of South Carolina where it's, it's built on the like with the juncture of three different rivers that come through here. So it is a bit further down, but um, it's not in the mountains. It's we're in what's called the Midlands here. So the, there's the low country, which is like Charleston and Myrtle Beach in that area down there near the coast. And then the uh, the Midlands is where Columbia is and kind of the surrounding areas. And then the, uh, I think they call it the high country. I can't remember what they call it around here, but um, that's where like Greenville and Spartanburg are up towards the mountains. Um, but there's a whole lesson of geography that goes along with barbecue here too. It's a whole culture thing. It's really interesting that we can talk about some other time, but yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to um, get into our, our show here, but um, I, th- I just feel like we're going to kind of skip the news a little bit because gosh, I, 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 <laughs> I, just sucks. I just don't feel like doing the news today. Cause it's just so depressing. I, I mean, almost all the time when you're reading the news, um, it's just like something bad happened and then you're like, Oh God. And anytime there's like a, an event, like we got the Oscars coming up, uh, this, is it tomorrow or sometime like this weekend or something. And you just know everything's going to be politicized and racialized and all this. And it's like, I don't even want to turn on anything that's remotely going to have any, (laughs) any chance of having political implications. And it's just, it's just, um, maybe that's a conversation in and of itself if we uh, kept kind of bogged down somewhere else. But uh, um, as far as uh, um, the sort of uh, taking sides, making teams sort of thing, whole ball game. But um, bef- before I get anywhere down there, um, Dan, I-, I think you wanted to share some, uh, some uh, articles, a couple articles and information about um, homeschooled weirdos, was it? Yeah, it was, an, it was an interesting article that I read earlier. Um, my wife sent it to me. She got it off of Facebook from one of her homeschool mom friends. And um, 
for those of you who are not aware, we homeschool our kids. So we've we've done the whole kind of gamut of of schooling options. We had our kids in public school for a little while. Um, we also had them in a in a couple of charter schools. Um, so they weren't private schools, but they weren't like the normal traditional public kind of model. Um, we've never done private schools because they're just they're just too expensive. But we did. Uh, we're currently homeschooling. We've homeschooled them in the past, and it seems to work well for our family. And the kids all like being together. And um, and so she got this article, and it kind of caught her eye because one of our big things is we you know we don't want our kids to grow up being the weird homeschool kids. And which I no knock on people who have the weird homeschool kids. You know, you may not think their kids are weird, but probably are because ours are too, to be honest. But um, the big idea of the article. It, it kind of contrasts the idea of the weird homeschool kids to the culture of conformity that's within school. So um, I thought it was a really interesting article. I'll screen share it so we can kind of go through it if you want. Um, but, you know, like I said, there's nothing wrong with having kids that are considered weird, but that's kind of what the, the point that this guy tries to make in the article is that it's kind of a subjective view of what's normal, if that makes sense. Um, and so this is an article by B.K. Marcus. Um, the title of the article is Homeschooled Weirdos and the Culture of Conformity. Not Seeming Weird Carries Its Own Costs. And this is from a, uh, a website called the something, what's it called? Foundation for Economic Education. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I believe that this is, I've never really seen this site before, so I think it's some sort of a, a homeschool advocacy group. So just be aware if any of you are going to check it out later on. This is a uh, very much a pro homeschool argument, and a lot of the articles on this site seem to be that way too. So I think it's some sort of a, a homeschool advocacy group. Um, but it's it's an interesting article. It provokes it provokes a lot of thought. Um, and he references a few other articles and studies that have been done in the past um, that you might find interesting as well. And it talks about um, you know asking kind of what the definition of of socialization is because of the main argument people have against homeschooling or the concern that people have when you tell them that you homeschool is, you know, what are you doing about, uh, you know, what are you doing about having your kids to be socialized, to be able to fit into society? And the author, the author talks about a previous article that he had written called Homeschooling, Socialization, and the New Group Think, um, which I'll also have linked in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it. And it is, uh, he gives his definition that he had kind of been running within that previous article which is that it's in socialization is ensuring that a child becomes more sociable or becomes sociable so that he or she can develop the intelligence and social reflexes that promote peaceful and pleasurable interactions. Now, he kind of contrasts that with a definition that was sent in by a third grade school teacher named Heather Lakemacher. Um, that it was a comment on his Facebook page that was submitted after he posted the article. Um, and it was, she defined it as simply not seeming weird. And I don't know if any of you who, you know, like me, went through the public school system, um, if any of you ever have, have met homeschool kids along the way who just seemed a bit off. And I, I think a lot of times it's just because they're, they're kind of quirky, you know, they're interested in what they're interested in. And, you know, as a homeschool family, we encourage our kids to, um, to find their things that they're interested in and to just study them. You know, like as adults, we find things that we're interested in and we invest time and energy into studying those things. Um, which is why we are able to learn more about them. So, you know, like um, one day I remember getting into wanting to get into archery, but I couldn't afford to go buy a new you know, bow. I wanted to look, I wanted to make a, a long bow. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. And so what I did was I went online and I found everything I could find out about 
you know, about bows and arrows, long bows, recurve bows, everything like that. And uh, I ended up making one out of PVC and reinforcing it with fiberglass rods and it fired great. And I was able to actually go out and shoot with it, shoot accurately, do some target practice. Um, I even hit a running squirrel one time. That was pretty sweet. Um, but the, the whole idea of it is, you know, if you're interested in something, you're going to want to study it. You're going to want to learn more about it. It's the, so it's like what teachers in school try to do by trying to make learning fun for their kids, but you're teaching them a bunch of stuff that they don't care about. So that's why it's hard for kids in public schools to care about their education. Um, but you know, this article kind of goes on and talks about the, about the whole idea of socializing your students, socializing your kids. And, uh, he goes into another, uh, a quote from, um, Diane, uh, Diane Flynn Keith, who is the author of the book car schooling. Um, and she says, quote, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but there's nothing normal about our kids. Those are homeschool kids. Uh, your homeschool child is odd compared to the normal schooled population because they have not experienced the ongoing school-based socialization and standardization. Um, they haven't been indoctrinated in the same way. They have not been steeped in the popular consumer culture to the degree that most schooled children have or schooled kids have been. Um, they're not adult phobic or peer dependent. And those are a couple of things that in that quote, you know, obviously it's very, uh, it's a, those are some, you know, a, it sounds like a book that's very homeschool focused, but the thing I thought was interesting about it were the lines that the, you know, your kids haven't been um, socialized and standardized. The standardized part jumped out at me as well as the idea of them being peer dependent, um, which I think is really a, an interesting concept on that point too. Um, I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add on that point, Chris, but I just think the idea of kids being um, kids being dependent on one another, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a normal sort of um, when you're not when you're not comfortable in your own skin or you're learning to be comfortable in your own skin, it's normal to want to be part of a group um, that sort of thinks and likes things the same way that you do. That's completely natural because we all want to feel validated. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's part of what public school sort of feeds into and not, not intentionally, but when you're in public school, um, if you're thinking and acting and feeling like the rest of the kids or a lot, the majority of the kids there, then you're sort of part of that collective and you can, um, uh, it makes you feel more comfortable because, Hey, gosh, darn it. People like me, you know, my friends like me. Um, so, and, and I think what that does is it's, it's, it's not entirely a negative thing, but I do think that there are some negative aspects to that. And I don't know if this is where you were going with things, but I'm just sort of picking up on the adult phobic and peer dependent aspect of what you said. And I think, um, what happens is that when people think differently, like what this article is saying is they're regarded as odd. So when, when you don't, when someone doesn't think the same way that I do, and I, uh, I guess I should rephrase that. When someone doesn't think the same way as the majority does, then they're regarded as odd. But that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, because we need people that think outside of the box. We need people that aren't dependent on, you know, trying to think the same way that everybody else is because it's what makes them feel comfortable. Um, and I think that's, that's really reflect, that's really where true leadership, true individuality is created. So when you see the people like the Albert Einsteins and um, the uh, even, you know, so we've got famous inventors, famous scientists, even famous artists, uh, famous politicians, 
if you look back uh, into some of their backgrounds, they were those type of kids. Um, not saying I'm not saying that everybody that's super smart is has that type of a background where they're just so different than everybody else. That's that's not true. But uh, what I am saying is that people who think differently are usually able to sort of uh, pave new ground and, and create sort of a um, a niche, if you will, for themselves. And and it's it's odd because as we grow up, so when we're in the school state, like in the schooling stage, high school, middle school and whatnot, we all want to think the same. But as we become adults, we actually start to uh, appreciate and respect people who think differently than, than us and who have a different perspective because we're sort of looking up to them like, oh, wow, that person has a really fantastic perspective on um, on a, this given subject. And I'd really like to learn more about it. And they seem like they're an authority in that. So, so people who have different perspectives, the value goes up astronomically as you enter the workforce and and into the you know later stages of life um so i would tend to agree with this article um i think the gist of the article um not entirely sure where where you're going with it but i feel like it, it's got a positive light it's sort of shining a positive light on homeschooling and although i don't necessarily think homeschooling is the only way to achieve that type of um think different thinking i do think it does help no, I don't think it is either. I mean, there's, um, for instance, when I was in high school, um, I've, I think I mentioned the stories before about kind of getting in trouble at times in high school because I asked too many questions at um, getting kicked out of a class for, for questioning the, what the teacher was saying. And How dare you? I know, right? A thought criminal here. Um, but it was one of those times when, uh, you know, I think it has to do mostly with, I think it has to do with partially the personality of the child. Um you know, someone who's very compliant may not necessarily want to think outside the box or think for themselves, and, and you know, maybe they do, but they don't, you know, express it that way. Um, but also, it has to do, I think, partially with the friends that you hang out with, because you know people do want to fit in, and even if you're in a public school situation, like uh, I was never the popular kid in school. Surprise, surprise, right? And uh, so we had uh, a lot of my friends that I hung out with we tended to be kind of the, the oddballs, the outcasts or whatever, whatever you want to call us. Um, and I had friends who were popular kids too. I like it. I tried to kind of be friendly with just about everybody. Um, but one of my best friends in my last couple of years of high school, um, he's one of the main influences that actually kind of led me towards the, uh, the libertarian path. Um, but we, you know, we would oftentimes go through and we'd look at different topics and we'd go through our research papers and stuff. And, and, um, always find little things to kind of nitpick about and, and pick apart and dissect and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's not one of those things where it's like, Oh, this is homeschool is the only way. It's the only way you're going to have free thinking kids. Um, I don't think that at all, but I think it, it does bring up some interesting points, um, about the nature. Cause I, I feel like as adults, we value the, the independence of free thinking individuals, um, you know, we look at people like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak for what they did with Apple, and um, which, granted, Steve Jobs did kind of rip Xerox off, but that's another story altogether. But he, you know, th those two guys together, they transformed the world, really, if you think about it. You know, starting with the, the original Apple designs and stuff, and look where we're at now. Um, as obnoxious as Apple can be sometimes, they did a lot of good for driving the industry forward. So now we, you know, to now we're we're looking at things like USB-C becoming the next standard thing that's going to be everywhere, which is great. Um, even though it's really annoying that the new ones only have 
like four ports on them. Go ahead. You want to say something? Well, I'll, I'll, first, I'll just agree with your very last statement right there, the USB-C, and they only have four ports. At work, we have a lot of people using those same computers, and they're regularly frustrated by that. But um, uh, isn't it interesting to note how Apple has changed since Steve Jobs passed? Because you're referring to him and Steve Wozniak as sort of like these these uh, pioneers. Who, you know, Granted, he may have gotten some of his ideas for Xerox, where he sort of Got his first like entry position into the into the that whole um, arena, but he began that. I mean, we you know we can can't even count on one hand the number of innovations that he made both in software and in hardware um, that sort of pushed the home computing industry to where it is now. But look at where Apple is now. Under uh, you know, it took a few years for that to sort of catch up because you have the uh, sort of the uh, the creative mill of like the projects that are going to be released forthcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people say that uh, the iPhone 5S was the very last phone that I, Steve Jobs was really involved in. And you could see the difference in the, even in the design and the functionality of that phone between the newer phones, which got bigger, um, they got uglier, uh, and that's just from an aesthetic standpoint. But looking at the company Apple itself, it's it, it, the company with Steve Jobs made its mark on the industry by being different and sort of presenting things in a different way. And now that they've sort of be almost... It's it, it's like um, uh, they've become the emperor, basically, in a, in a way. They've become what they so hated in companies like Microsoft, who are just like, I mean, Apple is constantly, I, I own all Apple devices, so I know. Apple is constantly having software and hardware problems all over the place now, and it was never like that before. There's all these bugs. They're releasing all these like really quick patches, and then the patches are fr- fixed. And and stop me if this doesn't sound familiar to another company that used to do the same exact stuff, uh, <coughs> Microsoft. <coughs> Microsoft. Uh, so it's it's it's. I think that I'm just the reason I'm bringing that up is to sort of uh, I guess illustrate the point that you're that we're both I think trying to make, which is like the innovation that these 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 men had and the difference that they made in the marketplace. And then when you throw something in there and just say okay, this is what's working for us. We're just going to keep doing that. We're going to stop innovating and just go with the flow. You see what happens. You get stuff that's messed up. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the advantage of thinking differently and pushing boundaries is is great. And sure, you're going to fail a lot. Steve Jobs, all these, these pioneers failed in so many respects, but it's the successes that we remember. You know, we remember Steve Jobs as being this this, this great man uh, since his passing, we remember him as being this great man who was such a great orator, and he could, you know, he could just talk talk to you about um, you know any subject, and you were just like instantly engrossed in it. He had these amazing gifts, but he wasn't necessarily like this gifted student in school. You know, he wasn't going to like. It, and I think there was a similar case maybe with Bill Gates too, where he didn't even finish his college career, things like that. So, I I guess to bring it back home, we we don't want to fit into molds because what happens is when we try to fit into molds, um, we end up, well, just fitting into the mold and being like everybody else and nobody stands out. Everybody's the same. Um, and you get just bland, blah, blah, blah. You get Toyota, you get, you know, Honda cars, you know, you get these cars that it's just what it is, what it is. Um, it's very bland, but it gets the job done, but everybody has one. Um, and now Apple's like that too. Everybody has one. It's just blah. So, um, I think I think it's very great 
a great a sign of a greatness to be able to stand out and not be afraid of being different and uh, sounding different and looking different and thinking different just in every respect of your life. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, and I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't mind sticking with the tech stuff if you want to keep talking about that. I think that, um, I don't know, I've noticed that with Apple. I've, I've never really been a huge Apple guy. Um, I'm starting to appreciate it a bit more now. Granted, I haven't used the newer MacBooks. I know I've seen, I did the, I watched reviews on them and stuff. Um, the port thing annoys me because, you know, IT stuff, I, I need ports. Um, I know, it's really annoying. So what I'm thinking about is we're, uh, I actually, I was looking at getting a new computer and I was looking at a Mac because I was like, you know, I, I want to be able to do more stuff for for our show, for the podcast and stuff. And I feel like a Mac would just make it easier. Um, looking at the new ones, I'm like, I can't do anything with that. I'm not going to spend $300 on new, you know, accessories and dongles and, and hubs and stuff. There's no reason for that. So um, actually, I'm looking back at like the 2015 models or something like that, which might work better. I'm actually, on this show, I'm actually using a, I'm using a 2009 MacBook ones little old like plastic white ones the unibody ones those are um, fantastic those oh, are yeah, this, they're slow by today's standards <clears throat> they're just fantastic it's not that bad i mean if coming from what i'm used to using it's really not that bad um it's uh yeah it's got a core do a core 2 duo processor in it it's got i think 5 gigabytes of ram cuz someone loaded in you know the wrong numbers of ram sticks in there but uh yeah, it's fine. It's a little slow, but it's not anything that I'm not used to because I run old computers all the time because I don't feel like buying new ones. But, um, but see, garage... the thing about those computers is they just work, you know, and that's sort of to to quote a phrase that I think maybe Steve Jobs coined. It just works. Mm-hmm. But that's not what Apple is anymore. It doesn't just work because like you just expressed, you have to have all these dongles and adapters and all that stuff. Even for my iPhone that no longer has a headphone jack, there's times when I'm I'm stuck down you know stuck up river without a raft because you know i can't i i don't have i don't have the right adapter i don't have the right headphone and i wanted to use it on my computer and you know it's just maddeningly frustrating that it doesn't just work you know yeah maybe in like 10 years when USB-C is the standard for everybody then it'll be it'll be great but i mean even looking at the at the specs of the new macbooks there it's all the same I mean, it's the same stuff that was in the, the previous MacBook. It's just slightly updated. You know, it's nothing new, nothing really innovative like you were talking about. Um, I remember I remember being in uh, in my freshman year of college in 05, and the guy across the hall was, everyone was, like, super jealous because he had the very, he had the first-generation iPod. And uh, we all thought that was the coolest thing ever. And then, like, I think it was, like, two, three years later, um, my wife for Christmas got me an iPod Classic, which I think was, like, the fifth or sixth-generation one. And that thing was great. I love that thing. I wish it still worked. It, um, but I can't buy anymore. I can't. I wanted to get. I wanted to get another one because it was like 160 gigabyte hard drive, so I could fit all my music on there, plus my backups and stuff like that. Um, and it had a full color HD LED screen. And uh, but yeah, that I dropped it one too many times, and the hard drive you know, got jacked up. But I can't buy a new one because they don't make them anymore. Everything's just the iPod Touch, which is basically a, a regurgitation of the iPhone without the cellular functionality. And um, so I find that super frustrating, but I mean, but, you compare that though. You mentioned Microsoft, and it's funny looking at Microsoft because they uh, they're actually innovating a lot. I, I've been kind of a critic of Microsoft since Vista, I think. Um, I, Seven was okay. I wasn't. I thought it was the best thing since XP. But um, everyone craps all over Windows 10, but it, honestly, it's not that bad. People, I, the thing I didn't like was the uh, 
the auto updating features on it and that really bothered me because it kind of took that control away from the user but if you know what you're doing or you know how to look it up on the internet you can easily fix that problem but um, I mean they're they're innovating left and right this new guy who's in charge of it Satya Nadella he he knows what he's doing man he's he's innovating a lot of open sourcing he's open sourcing a lot of uh, Microsoft projects and stuff um, like they got the they got the Linux subsystem for uh, or the Windows subsystem for Linux now so you can like for people like me who prefer using a Unix-based software like Linux or, or Mac, um, you know, if I had to do some sort of work on a Windows machine, I could use Ubuntu Linux or Debian or Fedora or something like that and be perfectly content with Windows now. Um, sorry, I kind of went on a tangent there. You go ahead with what you want to say. Well, you were talking about iPods and having, you know, the, the friend down the hall who had that iPod and then you got one a couple of years later. And... I also, I too, I still have my iPod. I have, I, I think it was like the fifth generation. The sixth generation was the last generation iPod. Um, and I picked a, I picked one of those up, the fifth gen for like 50 bucks. But you can't use it anymore unless you own your music. So in other words, unless you have CDs that you ripped music from and put it on your computer and keep it there and then put it on, you know, plug your iPod in to your computer, you literally cannot put music on there. I, I remember because I, I got into this um, iTunes match thing or iTunes match um, Apple music thing where you basically pay monthly a monthly fee, which is about the price of an album to be able to listen to any music all the time, anytime you want. And you can still download it onto your devices. But guess what? It doesn't work with any type of device that doesn't connect to the Internet. So you're if you're an owner of an old iPod, you're screwed. Um, you can't use it. It's useless. It's a worthless piece of metal just taking up space now. You know, and I put it in one of my storage compartments, even though I love it and would love to use it. I just don't have all of the music anymore. I lost it over the periods of time when I realize, you know, realize, you know, you, computer breaks down or whatever. And, you, you know, you lose stuff and whatnot. But um, and also to illustrate to, to talk another point you made about your your MacBook having what five gigs of RAM. You can't switch out your RAM anymore in the new I, MacBooks. Um, really? The laptops. You can't even switch your RAM out in a Mac in an iMac, the new iMacs. You can't do anything to those short of. Uh, I think, you know, even in the new ones, I don't even think you can switch out your hard drive anymore without everything is soldered into the motherboard. Period. That's ridiculous. So yeah, it, that was one of the things that I loved because I think I had like um, several generations of MacBook, um, the MacBooks, the MacBook Pro. Um, I think I had a 17-inch one, the the big one that you, the biggest one you could get when I was in college. I ended up getting another one after that from like 2009, and I think I got a 2011. And all of those, I took them and I swapped out my RAM so I could get more RAM because guess what? I didn't want to pay the astronomical amount that Apple was charging at the time. A couple years down the road, the RAM gets cheaper. You buy some and you throw it, you unscrew the back of it, you throw the stuff in there, the RAM in there, and you're good. You swap it out. The new ones you can't do. That. Not only do you not have you know more than four ports that are the same thing. Um, you can't you can't switch out your RAM. You can't switch out your hard drive, even if it's an SSD on a chip. Um, what else? I think I, I did a I did a um, I did a processor swap one time on one of my MacBooks, mm -hmm. and it was fantastic. You won't get anywhere near that anymore, you know. Um, so that's really disappointing. So Apple's just moved in the direction of um, that planned obsolescence that we hear so frequently. Which you know, which just basically just means that companies are planning for your for the products that they sell you today to be obsolete within a few years, so that you're basically uh, forced to buy a new one, 
new the uh, the latest version um, when it's when it's not really working it's slowing down and speaking of slowing down we've got the whole debacle of apple devices slowing down where they basically got caught with the uh, caught red-handed caught with their pants down whatever you want to call it um with these bat with these battery issues and they basically said you know gave a gave a load of horse manure and told people that oh well devices with older batteries have to be slowed down um in the software because it, the battery just can't take the strain of the full power of the system um, so what they're telling you is we purposely slow your device down and it's because of your battery, um, which should last at, at least a year or two. But we have people who bought devices a year ago, year and a half ago, who are experiencing it slowing down. My wife has an iPhone 6S, which is like a year and a half, no, two years old maybe at the most. And it just, you know, it just slows down, slows down. But yet the processor was state of the art two years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm still running um, and, this and like you're saying, processors, the technology hasn't changed that much, right? I mean, we have this, the, the difference between, and you can go on, on the internet and look up an article, you name it from like tech radar or wherever, the comparison between a sixth generation Intel processor and an eighth generation Intel processor of the same uh, tier is almost nothing performance wise. There might be like a 10 to 15% bump but it's got, you know, it, especially since they haven't increased the number of transistors, I think they're still at 14 nanometer technology. Mm-hmm. They're still trying to get to the 10 nanometer, which I'm sure we'll see a bit of a bump at some point once they get into that next generation. But there's no difference. So why is a two-year-old phone have performance drops when there's no real, um, you know, discernible difference between the, the generations of the chips? It's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's stupid. Like I was showing you, I, I'm sort of rocking an iPhone 4S because, you know, like I said, I use, just use stuff until it runs out. But, yeah, this thing was, I mean, it's, what, what, year, what year did the 4S come out? Was it like 2011? Is that when it came out? Something like that? That's, a, that's a good question. I would say probably 2010, 2011. Well, let's look it up. Let's see. iPhone 4S. But that, to be honest with you, the iPhone 4S and the iPhone 5, and 5s were my favorite iphone designs they were just solid they were you know had those nice edges very well designed the camera didn't stick out the back and i always loved that because at, at the time the galaxy the samsung galaxy the o, the lg devices all had these cameras stupid cameras that stuck out the back and it was all plasticky looking and and you couldn't set your i was like i would laugh at them because i'm like oh they can't set their phone down even on a flat surface it's just gonna rock around and guess what the iphone 6 came out and it and it had this camera that sticks out and it and it even worse than the camera being in the middle it's off to one side so anytime you set it down without a case it's just gonna rock around and <sighs> yeah no i mean this thing has been running fine until this most recent they, they forced an update onto it and same thing now it slows down it's slower than it ever has been and when it hits like between anywhere between 20 percent and six percent it just shuts off I'm like, you got 20% left. Why are you shutting my phone off? It's so frustrating. So, like, anything that, anytime that I'm out and I don't have my charger with me, then it's just it's gone, you know? So, I've got this thing until it runs out. Then I got a 5C to take its place afterwards, but I got to switch providers because it's like a GSM. So, I can't use it on Verizon, which is also stupid. But And, and to be honest with you, battery problems on an iPhone, what, a six, six or seven year old iPhone 4? You said 2012? 2011, I was right. 2011, so we were right. So 2011, so you got a seven-year-old phone. Yeah, it's going to have battery problems, I would assume. 
you know that and that's that's perfectly understandable but not on a two-year-old device not on a not even maybe a three-year-old device you you could expect to start seeing things like that happen but we're finding out that the batteries were manufactured so cheaply and again guys just look this up go do a simple google search the batteries were manufactured on such a cheap process that they're degrading quicker than they should have been and apple's basically come out and admitted this they're like oh yeah well, if you want, you know, you can come in and get a battery replacement for da 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 price. So they're not even going to do it for free. You know, it's something that should be lasting the entire life of the phone, at least two years, you know, until your contract runs out and you get another phone and afford to, you know, put down the payments on it because nobody can afford to put down a thousand dollars. Very few people can afford to put down that thousand dollars cash to buy the phone uh, outright. So, you know, they've got you, they've got us between a rock and a hard place. And, and it's kind of disappointing to see. You know, from a company that's, I thought, uh, to be as reputable as Apple, you know, I've always looked at Apple for the longest time as being, yes, this reputable company, they they um, man manufacture things that are the highest quality, they don't cut corners, they don't, they don't um, try to hide things like some of these other companies, they build solid devices, you know, things like that. And now it's come to that. And not only do we have hardware problems, but we've got software problems galore. I mean, the updates just for iOS alone for the for the mobile devices is just insane. And they keep saying, oh, it's going to fix this. And then you read this article, an article based on the drop, the the latest, uh, excuse me, the latest drop, the latest um, iOS update. And it's like, oh, this breaks now, this breaks now. You can't text this particular character or else it'll shut your phone off. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a nightmare. They really need to, Apple needs to simplify and go back to what you know was working for them before where you had one device one screen size you weren't trying to like make you know every single person happy you were just making a really great product that was solid you know with very few updates that worked yeah yeah that's how it should be you know um on the on the topic of of like phones and stuff like that i got something to show you and you're gonna like it because i got super excited when i heard about it um now, you guys all know that I am a big Linux open source nerd, um, so I wanted to show this to everybody um, and just let you all have a look at it. This is the Librem 5 from a company called Purism, and Purism is a, 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 is a, Linux, is a Linux hardware software manufacturer, um, and they release a line of laptops that are um, kind of unique because they're, they're built to run Linux, so they kind of are more stable in that way when it comes to you know hardware compatibility with the with the uh the linux kernel um but they wanted to, they wanted to put out a phone and so they were crowdsourcing it and there's a lot of debate about whether or not it was going to actually get funded um they actually managed to get i think 150 156 percent of their their uh, crowdsourcing or crowdfunding goal um and so this is a kind of a mock-up of what it's going to look like when it's ready so it's a pretty slick looking phone i think and i mean it doesn't have like the uh you know the huge screens that like the um the new iphones have but i'm not sure exactly what the dimensions are going to be but i intend on getting one of these at some point whenever they they have them actually fi you know finished being manufactured and everything um but it actually runs a uh, a mobile version of linux and so it's more um you know it's not android it's not ios it's a different infrastructure completely um but their focus is primarily on privacy and the user having ownership over their device so no longer are you tied into the Apple ecosystem or the um, the Android ecosystem, which is you know dependent on Google or dependent on the device manufacturer like Samsung or or, or um, LG or something like that. 
Um, but the other cool thing about it, I don't know if you can see them on the side here, there's little buttons here. And some of those, you know, are going to be like volume rockers and stuff like that, but they actually are going to have <clears throat> physical kill switches for the camera and the uh, the um, the microphones. So that way, you, you for people who are paranoid, maybe they're being spied on by their phones, you can actually just physically, you know, disable the camera and the uh, the audio device, which I think is pretty sweet. That is really cool, and I like the idea of the privacy and and sort of the open sourceness of the of the uh, operating system and of course linux is very very awesome and very stable um i would probably i honestly would probably be using it if it wasn't you know so um uh, uncommon i guess in in the industry i work in uh, it's just so difficult to use it would be difficult to have the proper software for every program um, that i need and be able to work with i guess other people who are using the platforms it's kind of like the almost the same situation that apple users experienced you know 15, 20 years ago, where it's like um, very difficult to share things, but um, or or uh, work together. But I'm assuming they they're probably working around that stuff very well. So I don't want to I don't want to hold it to that standard. We're making but, we're making great progress, great success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> very great progress. But um, you brought up since you brought up security, I just want to bring up something else. You know, and I'm gosh, I you know I, I'm a huge Apple user, um, and I have always been an Apple fan, um, borderline Apple fanboy, I would say, but, and I'm sorry for those of you who, who really like Apple and I'm not trying to bash them continuously on this episode on purpose, but this just sort of keeps coming up because they're doing these things. Um, but I do want to bring up an article. This is out of wired and, um, I, I'm pretty sure most of our viewers would, would know that Apple has moved its iCloud data to China. Oh, so, yay. Yay. So they, um, yeah. Apple moved their iCloud data to China, and uh, also the encryption uh, the encryption keys. So I don't know if any, for anybody who've, who's watched uh, Apple keynotes, we they, they and the security comes up. They would talk about encryption keys and all those um, those those fancy phrases um, for identity protection as being like that's the only way to get to your information. Blah blah blah. Well, they're actually in moving to China because China is giving them such a great zero percent tax deal on this. Um, you know, so zero taxes for Apple because they're moving this this um, part of their business to China. Um, well, China is going to have access, you know, legally have access to all that stuff and basically can force Apple to give them information if they need to, because that's how China works. They're a communist country. Who, fit, who knew, right? So um, uh, I it, it boggles my mind uh, to to think I, I, I'm trying to understand. I think maybe from a business perspective, Apple's really, really, really trying to gain a, a strong foothold in China. So they're like, okay, let's go ahead and you know get this, you know, we'll we'll sacrifice our ideals here so we can continue to get a stronger foothold in China. Because guess what? That translates to more money for us because China has billions of people that you know if we can get them iPhones into their hands, that's more money for us. Um, and gosh, I, again, I'm not trying to bash Apple. But that's just sort of this is the this is in the news. This is what Apple's doing. This is the moves that they're making publicly that we can all see. Um, it's out there naked for everybody to see, and it's just honestly a, quite disturbing. Um, I don't know what what do you, what's your take on that uh, Apple moving to China? I don't like that. I don't like that they're storing. Why do they have to store all their data in China? I don't understand that. There's with with the technology available. Why would they need to do that? 
Does it, the article say anything about that? Uh, I haven't really read this article um, through, but one thing that that is a problem is Chinese law. I mean, is diff- obviously going to be quite different from American law. So we've had public, very public cases and heated debates about privacy. Um, I don't. It was a couple of years ago with the San Bernardino shooter. Um, basically, he had an iPhone, and the FBI was trying to get the information off the iPhone for this you know, this guy who you know went on a, on a rampage. And Apple was basically like, "Sorry, you know, we don't have the encryption key, so our hands are totally tied. We can't help you out with that." Um, but guess what? Like, we found out after the fact that Apple does have ability to unlock that type of stuff. Apple did, of course, build that in backdoors because what smart company wouldn't? Um, the problem is, is that um, that that they want to keep their public face to uh, to appear to be. Um, I guess in the people's favor, I think, but uh, more and more of these moves that they're making is are really betraying sort of their lack of concern for the consumer and total concern for their bottom line. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. I don't, and I just think it's stupid. Like as far as the San Bernardino guy, I don't, I still don't understand why the cops didn't just stick the dead guy's thumb on his phone to unlock it. That I mean, most people who have that ability are using it, even though I personally wouldn't, you know, like the police have the authority to be able to use, they, they can comp- compel you to give your, th- your fingerprints when you get booked or if you go somewhere else, they have, con- I'm pretty sure this has gone through like the court of appeals and everything too. They've decided that it's, the police have a constitutional right or the federal Bureau of Investigation, whoever, they have a, a constitutional right to be able to, um, to compel you to give your fingerprint as part of the booking process but they don't have the the right to force you to give your pin. And so you shoot the guy, he's dead, you take his thumb, you stick it on his phone, it's unlocked, and you just don't let it lock itself back. Because it, uh, iPhones, I think they uh, automatically like lock it and you have to put in a pin after like 72 hours or something like that. You can change settings so that it never locks once you're in. But I think you would, yeah, and again, if you had the fingerprint, you could just keep doing that. Right. Um, but but I, don't, I don't know that the fingerprint was implemented at the point of that event so i and i could be wrong maybe it was maybe it wasn't but right that, I mean, that's that's really another here nor there i was just, just just a thought but the, the idea of china being in control of that bothers me because i feel like there's a lot of places in the world where you can store that data especially with virtual servers and and the way that the internet's set up and the way that you know like for instance i could spin us up a a, a ver, you know a vps on a service like DigitalOcean, for example and I could set us up a Linux server that is running that hosts all of our files, and we could do everything through there. I don't do that because it's a lot of work, and I don't have the time or the energy to do it, and it costs money. So Patreon.com/slash/twowiseguys if you want to help out. Um, but the thing is, is I can set that virtual server to be coming out of anywhere. I can set it to come out of Russia. I can set it to come out of China. It could be coming out of New York. It could be coming out of San Francisco. It could be coming out of Switzerland. It doesn't matter. You can pick where. So why? I don't understand why that data has to be stored in a country that most people, for no other reason, like a lot of people just don't trust them, you know, their government, rather, not the, not the Chinese people, but the government over there, you know? I don't even know the title of the guy who's running the country, but he set himself up permanently as essentially a dictator just a couple weeks ago, a week ago. They voted for it. He's never leaving. 
you know, it's hard to say they voted for it when there's only one candidate on the ballot. Um, well, there's others. There's others, and there's political sort of parties, I guess. But there, I, I don't know if it's like a vote or what. But he set himself up as you know, essentially like the uh, he's the guy now, forever, as long as he's al- alive. Mm-hmm. You know, Mussolini had elections too. Just, just saying. And <laughs> anyways, socialism, socialism. Yeah. Never works. It never works yet. You know, I don't understand why there's even there's even a conversation going about that. But I also um, kind of wonder how many people in China can afford a phone that costs eight thousand three hundred eighty-eight yen or yuan. Excuse me. It just makes me wonder. You know, because anyways, that's how much the iPhone is going to cost in China. That's a lot of yuan. It's a lot of yuan. I mean, it's a thousand dollars here. It's a lot of dollars too. But um, I don't know. The, see, the thing... So now we have this conversation. Now I'm not even sure if I want a Mac anymore. Um, I don't know. I, I like it. I think it's if it's a fun system to use. It's got all these... You know, I like Pages. I think Pages is a cool little... It makes nice-looking documents, you know? Um, it's not as functional as I would like. It's not as functional as, like, Microsoft Word or LibreOffice, but it, it looks nice. Um, yeah, I haven't even seen Microsoft Word, and I can't even tell you how long. Uh, yeah, it's not... Uh, I'm not really a fan of it. There's too many new bells and whistles they try to put in that just slow everything down. Um, I've been using LibreOffice for the longest time because that's what we have on Linux. But um, you should check it out sometime. You can uh, you can go on do like an online version of it. It works okay. You know what I use at work or what is uh, Google Docs to be honest with you, because um, our our um, our work accounts, our work emails are set up on Google, even though it's like under our own. Um, company domain name um so everything is google docs you got google slides you got google docs you got google whatever, spreadsheets it's cool i like it i mean it's they they work you know they work they're not slow it's it might be web-based but you can access your information anytime from a web browser as long as you have your login so i do like that mm-hmm. aspect of it yeah they i mean i'll tell you one thing i'm not a huge fan of google docs mostly because I'm not a huge fan of Google either, but I do like their uh, slides, I think is what they call it, the PowerPoint equivalent. Um, they, they make some good-looking presentations. I've made a couple of them over the years, and they look really good. Um, but, no, I mean, I just... I keep going back to it, and the reason why I like Linux is because it puts the user in control of these things. And they're making such strides now with... Um, with software compatibility and vendor, it, there's no vendor lock-in, so it's not like um, it's not like you have to worry about having to stick with one particular part of the ecosystem in order to use it. You know, like um, like for instance, I use I've been using Ubuntu for like the last seven years, off and on, um, or its derivatives. There's Linux is complicated. It's maybe it's worth a discussion some other time when it's not quite as uh, <coughs> excuse me, where it's not quite as random of a, a discussion as we're having now, but, um, you know, I'm able to, to, I'm able to put in, you know, what I want to share, you know, like when you go, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. Like when you're using windows or you're using Apple, you know, it reports back to, to Microsoft or it reports back to Apple, what, you know, where your location is, for instance, um, with Linux, they're just now starting to decide whether or not they want to do that. And they're leaning to, I think in uh, the next release, of Ubuntu and a few other versions, I think maybe Fedora, they're going to start doing that. 
Um, no, not Fedora. I'm sorry. It's elementary OS. But anyways, they're they're leaving it at the country level. Like they don't want to know your IP address. They don't want to know what state you're in. They don't want to know what city you're in. They just want to know what country you're in. So if you're if you're in an English speaking country, we should probably do more development for English speaking language, you know, sets. Um, if you're in France, we should probably do some more development for French people, you know, friends, things like that. But um, I don't know. I just feel like it it offers more more freedom of you to be able to use. The system the way you want it to be used without it tracking all of your data, without tracking all of your progress. Because um, I remember reading a, 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 an article or a book a few years back, um, even talking about Microsoft Office and how if you know if your system is connected to a network, if it's connected to a, to the internet, um, part of the usage data that gets sent back to Microsoft is how you're using Microsoft Word. So it's taking what you're writing and it's sending it back to Microsoft. Not not the entirety of what you're writing, but it takes you know snippets of what you're writing and sends it back to Microsoft. Hmm. Um, I don't know if they're still doing that. I feel like they're probably moving away from that. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like it's one of those things. And the nice thing is that now we're starting to see more and more companies developing for, especially um, things like Ubuntu Linux, which is kind of the big one. It's one that most people use. And so, like we're seeing, like we have Steam on Linux now, which is great. So you know, you can't necessarily get like the highest end games per you know per se, but there's a lot of games being ported to the Linux version of Steam. So you know, we're able to sit on there and and play. Um, I don't know. I don't play a lot of games anymore, but you know, you could go on there. I could go on there and play Knights of the Old Republic on my Linux box, no problem, which is great. Um, anyways, I'm on another tangent. Go ahead. Well, to piggy to piggyback off what you were saying just a few minutes ago about. Um, uh, shit, was it sharing location, sharing the user's location? Was that what you were saying? Yeah, I think. So, I every time every time I use an app on my phone, uh, every time I download a software update on my phone or my computer, there's always like those little check boxes, right? It's like, do you want to share your information, blah blah blah, for purposes of um, what is it for? Like, uh, what's it called for the purposes of like. Um, for the company to be able to like diagnostic type stuff is that yeah. what I'm saying that right yeah something like that okay well anyway I'm I'm, I'm not I probably not giving the full name right but I I every time I see those I'm like should I click it should I click it you know like I don't know are they going to be watching me is there something in this like NDA or it's, is there somewhere something in this agreement that like is like saying like hey we can track you anytime anywhere and that thought goes through my mind and. Am I saying that that thought is right? No, I'm not saying that. But that thought does go through my mind now just because of all of the news that we've seen, all of the proven news that we've seen, not just this isn't just rumors where, you know, we had Google in 2013 doing, you know, stuff like this and whatnot, tracking users, keeping users information. And, you know, guess what? We have an entire NSA facility in Utah, 11 acres that does nothing but, uh, you know, dragnet people's uh, information and um uh, um, you know, conversations and uh, transactions and everything like that. So this, you know, and we know about this because of WikiLeaks. We know about this because of, you know, whistleblowers. So, and the media, despite the media's best efforts to, you know, keep keep this stuff under wraps and, you know, call the label these people kooks and et cetera, <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. So, for me, the disturbing thing about it is, you know, great, Linux is, you know, a company like Linux or uh, operating system like Linux, I should say, is like still sort of like trying to see should we do this or not. The problem I see is that 
to, in order to stay with the times, to continue to uh, perform at peak levels um, and uh, be abreast of the best technology and um, information that we all want to have access to, that we become accustomed to having access to at our fingertips, we're going to have to do that stuff. We're going to have to say yes to that stuff. And it's getting, you know, even I remember when I first would see those things, I, I would be a little leery of it. And then, you know, they sort of like convince you like, okay, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. We're not tracking. We're not saving any data, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Let me click this and I, I won't worry about it. And then you find out later Uber was doing the same thing and tracking you, you know, while, you know, while the app's off and figuring out where you're at so they can, you know, all for their own uh, purposes. You know, so I, I'm just past, I'm, I'm, I'm past all of this with these companies, you know, lying to us. I don't trust any of those agreements. I mean, if you read, if, you know, I don't have time to read through all those agreements. I just assume the worst when I see those agreements now. And, um, and I think it's a, that's a fair assumption to have. Um, it's a, it's a, it's understandable given all of the uh, information that's come out. Um, but I really do think that this is where the future is. Um, and I hate, as much as I hate to say it, that's just integration is the future. And the only way you can get more integrated is to, ha to have more information, to share more information between programs, between devices, between, you know, uh, the internet of things, the more information is shared, the more um, sort of like data um, and, and metadata that gets shared. That's the only way things get more integrated and get smarter and you get refrigerators that figure out when they're going to die and tell you, how to, you know, you got to fix something or change the temperature and all that stuff is because of the, the root of what, what, what I'm talking about right now and what you're talking about with the security measures and, and opting into, you know, sharing your location. And to make all that possible, you have to opt in. So that's why I'm saying it's the future because we don't, um, as a society, you know, it, and it's kind of brings is bringing it a little bit full circle back to the to the homeschooling thing where you want to be part of the group you want to go with the flow and be part of the norm this is what we've become accustomed to we've essentially been trained into this um, type of a lifestyle by the very devices and the very products that we're buying and paying for the iphones the galaxies the computers that have only one port that you have to get all these adapters for and sign all these agreements for every time you download a software update we're being trained for that stuff. Not, not necessarily like, like with a trainer, with a whip and, you know, Hey, go ahead and stand up and, you know, do this trick for me type of thing. But it's, it's like, um, it's like when you feed a, it's like when you feed an animal, uh, like a dog, you, you're always, you put the food in their dish and they, they come to expect the food to be in their dish at a certain time in a certain place, because that's when the food shows up. And, that's an that's sort of like what's being done here. We're getting the food in our dish. We're getting all the information provided for us by these companies, by Google and the searches, and everything's more effective. And and now, the, like I said, the only thing that's making that possible is us basically giving up our privacy. Okay, we got to give up our privacy if we want that stuff, um, and we do want that stuff. So I guess we got to give up our privacy. Um, and and if we don't, and this will be the last thing I say right here, but. If we don't give up our privacy, then we get left behind. Um, we get left behind at, at, at work. We get left behind at school. And I think that we're not very far away from this. I think our kids are going to be putting up with this type of stuff, you know, in school and in the workplace where you have to have immediate access to this information. You have to have the latest technology to be able to stay abreast of everything because it's moving so quickly. And if you want to keep your job or you want to get a job in a particular field, you're going to have to do that. 
um, you're going to have to sacrifice your privacy or, you know, you're just not going to be, um, you're not going to be able to get uh, hired. You're not going to be able to work. You're not going to be able to make money. And, uh, you know, that's just fantastic. I, I think that's just fantastic that we have to give up our privacy for that. I'm being sarcastic. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell at all. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, I agree. And I mean, that that's why I use Linux. And I know it, it sounds weird. It sounds like I'm preaching. It really isn't. But it's more of like, I grew up in the Windows ecosystem. So I, I grew up being used to Microsoft. I, I got introduced to my, I mean, my first computer I ever used was like, I don't even know. It was like some, it was like an Amiga or something. One of those old green and black screen text only command line systems. It was at my grandma's house. So back in the early 90s, imagine. Okay. And then my mom came home with a Hewlett Packard desktop PC running Windows 95 and had a little disc for America Online with her 56K modem. And it was a glorious day. And, uh, you know, we just were, we always had Windows. I had Windows, you know, and I was, I didn't really realize how weird I guess I was because I grew up on the internet. I grew up connected to computers and new technologies. And, and while I may not have always had the latest, newest technology, like I didn't think so at the time because we didn't have the thing that just came out like two days ago. Um, it wasn't until I married your sister that I realized how, like, how advanced our family was when it came to, you know, having technology in the house and stuff. Like, my mom bought a PC in 95 when Windows 95 came out. We were on America Online, like, when it first was becoming a thing, you know, like, before it was everywhere. Um, you know, I was I remember hanging out with my stepdad at the time um, when we were, I think I was, like, 10 or 11, and we'd be, you know, connected in the house playing Command and Conquer over a LAN. You know, I didn't know, I, I realized I didn't have any other friends who did that stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, I had... I had a, a laptop that was given to me by the school I went to up near Chicago. It was uh, running Windows 98. And, man, that thing was heavy. It was like 20 pounds, I swear. It was so heavy. And I had to walk to school with that thing on. It was so heavy. Um, and I was a fat kid. I hated exercise, and so it was miserable. Um, but I played with that thing all the time. And, uh, anyways, long story short, you know, I end up I end up staying on Windows until 2010. And I discovered Linux and I started using it. And it's the greatest thing. It's fast. You know, I remember originally putting it on a on a, a laptop running. It was a Windows XP laptop that I had, um, and it was slow. It took like ten minutes to boot up because it was just so run down and slow with all the stuff from Windows and everything. And I put Ubuntu Linux on there, and it booted up in like thirty seconds. It was great, which sounds like a long time now, you know, in twenty in twenty eighteen. But anyways, it was it's just interesting seeing the way things are going now and understanding. The things that Microsoft does and seeing what Apple's doing with moving their servers and everything over to China and the way that they're monitoring things and the way that they're working with the FBI and the CIA and the NSA or whoever it is that they're working with now. Um, you know, and you mentioned the keys, that they have the encryption keys. I would assume that those are public keys that they're bringing over there because they should not have access to your private key if you're doing encryption. Um, that should be stored locally on your device. But if they are you know, taking that and having that handy, that's not good either. And if they're able to crack that, you know, 128-bit encryption or whatever they're using, based on just their pro their public key, there's n that's not secure at all, and that's a concern as well. So you know, I'd rather continue using something like Linux where I'm able to, you know, to encrypt my own stuff. And I think you know, I think would be fun, and um, and we we can talk about this later. But I think it might be fun 
for next week episode or next <laughs> I went southern there I went real southern there um, for maybe next week's episode for us to do a, a show dedicated to uh, you know things that we can do to to de like de fi your life or something it's a bad name for it because it's not just talking about Google but um, you know just how to be more secure online and with your your things like that because I I think you're right as far as this whole idea of um, you know we have to conform to what the what these manufacturers are saying, you know, we have to opt in to being tracked. We have to opt in to giving up our, our privacy and our, our own personal security with these things um, for our data in order to be a part of the system that has been established. And I don't necessarily think it's a good system. I feel like it's, it's one that compromises too much. That's why we have things like Equifax where we're not even given the option to opt into that. We're just included in it because that's how the system runs. And now all of our data is out there for what, like 300 million people? That's the entire population of the United States of America, and uh, or a little bit less. And um, you know, like, are my is my is my nine, seven, and five year old kids' data part of that breach? Is that out there now so that people can sell that to you know on the dark web or something like that? That's what I would wonder. And they didn't have an opportunity to opt into that. We didn't have an opportunity to opt out of it either. There's no way to opt out of it. Um, so I just think I think maybe it would be good to uh, kind of take some time and maybe next week go through that. It could be our own personal little PSA or something like that about how to reclaim your privacy, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I, I think that'd be a great thing to do. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of viewers would probably enjoy that. I know I would, um, because I'm always, that's always something that's at the back of my mind and is, is reclaiming privacy. And, um, there's sort of like this, this, uh, I guess yearning almost to get, get back to a simpler way of life. And, um, bring things to, you know, bring just sort of like the uh, intensity of life down, you know, um, there's just so much that's going on uh, these days. Um, and it's there, we're just constantly bombarded by information from all sides. And it's only going to intensify, it's only going to continue to grow the amount of information as as we continue to see society push more towards a greater integration of lifestyle with technology. And um, I think that I've become convinced that the only real way to regain tr- true, true privacy, um, not you know like complete, fully get get that privacy back, is to basically go off grid, to leave essentially life as we know it. And I think speaking of um, opting in. Like you're saying about the Equifax, you know, with social security numbers um, and credit report type of things, we which we'd never opt into because we're just sort of like we're born into that. Because guess what? You get a social security number when you're born. So you're born into that. You know, it's not a choice. It is a fact. Um, and and um, I think that's yeah. social security is, I guess, a good thing, of course, because it's, you know, it's a social net. But um I, I feel like we, we're being herded, herded like cattle. Society in general is being herded like cattle out of out of the fields, you know, to sort of use a metaphor, um, out of the plains into the um, into the barn, I guess, or the cities and the technology. The barn representing city, city and technology. The field representing nature, and um, sort of like just being, you know, uh, simpler things. And that, because if you look, okay, even the people who, who, from a vocational standpoint, 
had cho- have chosen or grown in uh, grown up in the, uh, chosen to be farmers or grew up in a family that was a farmer for example a farming family for example they're being pushed out of that now i mean that's been t- taken over that's long since been taken over by large companies like the monsantos and everything and um, they basically own you know they figured out a way so that they could own the farmers um go watch <laughs> there's some very interesting documentaries on monsanto and farmers by the way if you guys ever get a chance to watch them um it's very very eye-opening um, and it's very sad at the same time because these, you know, farmers who are, you know, making a living um, being farmers uh, are, are having essentially their the rights to their very own seeds taken away from them. So I guess uh, in one second, I, I just want to make this point. I guess what I'm trying to say is so that the farmers are getting pushed out of this, too, because they can't they can no longer make money. They can no longer be profitable. They can't they can't even live their life the way that they are out there um, because it's they're being forced out of it. And that's the part that's really disturbing to me is that we're losing our our privacy because we're being forced out of um, those type of situations. I mean, you see that those type of true vocations um, where it was like the good old American way, good old, not even good old American way, just the way things were done before, you know, the turn of the century, you know, it is is it's just rapidly changing. And now everybody works in tech. Basically, almost every major job that's out there now is involved in some way or another with tech. And not, it's, not it becomes tied in, um, you know, I mean, there's of course, there's jobs out there that are, that are not tech. But I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is not necessarily tech companies, but our lives are inexorably touched by technology. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. I'll and, give our, you that. and our jobs are so like even if you work at, um, I mean, Burger King or McDonald's or something, you're, you know, you're working with technology all day. If you're working um, just just pick a pick a vocation and you're working with computers and things all day whereas like somebody who's owns a farm may have like a computer in the back room somewhere because they need to use it every once in a while um but and and the reason I'm, i'm harping on technology i think is because that's where we're losing our privacy because we're getting so at while we're getting so integrated with technology while we're doing that as a society we have to give up there's all these things that we have to give up and I just, I, I don't want to sound conspiratorial here, but I feel like that's, that's, um, that's a purposeful thing. That's, that's, that we're, that we're, you know, being pushed towards that. Um, but at the same time, it's something that people want too. like, not, nobody wants to be a farmer, you know, oh. I'm not saying that people, I mean, very few. And then when I say nobody, I mean, like, it's a low percentage of the population, but very few people want to be a farmer there because as you're growing up in the schools, you're being told again to bring, bring this back to our initial topic of, of homeschooling and being weird and not fitting in. You're a weirdo now if you want to be a farmer, cause like, what the heck, why do you want to do that? Why don't you want to work in like the medical profession or don't you want to work as a, um, as a, uh, you know, uh, lawyer or something like that. So we're, that's why I, I feel like it's, it's, it's becoming so weird. It's becoming so anti, countercultural to to want those and to to be those things i don't know i feel like i'm not necessarily making my point as well as i want to but um i guess i i feel like we're losing our options almost like we can still do those things but we're made to feel like we can't that makes sense i think it makes sense i mean i know a lot of people who want to be farmers and maybe it's i think maybe it might be a cultural thing too because Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys haven't like you and your family, even from when you were a child. Like you guys never really lived in a very 
rural part, you know, place. Like if you typically lived in cities, right? Or more urban environments. Not necessarily. We lived um, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which is pretty rur- pretty rural. Um, There's not farmers also, on Cape Cod, though. Well, yeah, it doesn't. You don't have to have farmers to be rural, but right. it's it's very sparse. Um, the people down down the street from us, the dude was making a a boat. He made a boat from scratch so he could sail around the world. Um, the guy right down the road from us. So there's some, you know, interesting characters. It's just a different world because it's so everybody knows each other's business, that type of stuff. So I've lived in like those type of areas and I loved it. Um, because I mean, I, we had a huge backyard with a forest and trails back there. My sister, when I would run around barefoot, you know, and just play, play back in those areas. And it was the most fun. We didn't, sit around and play games we didn't watch tv because we really barely had a tv you know and i loved it and it's 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 weird to say that because i live in los angeles now which is like one of the most densely packed areas um but you almost it almost feels like this sort of like pipe dream to want to get back to those things because it's like gosh you know if i did move somewhere more rural if i did be become a, I'm just using farmers as an example but if I wanted to do something like that if I wanted to go more off grid how would I support myself we're, we're you know what I mean like it feels like a almost like a difficult thing at least where I live um, in the situation I'm in yeah I don't I think that it depends more on where you're at I mean because for instance we I, I was born and raised in Florida for the most part until I was about 10. And then we moved to southern Indiana. We were up near Chicago for like a year, maybe. Maybe I think it's more like six or eight months. But we ended up moving down to southern Indiana, which we lived in the city, like on the outskirts of the city. We were in Bloomington, Indiana, which is um, the home of Indiana University. So it's a city. It's developed and everything. But um, there's lots and lots of farmland around there. And so a lot of the guys I knew from high school, middle school and high school, you know, they they wanted, they were going to grow up and be farmers. They were your typical rednecks, you know. And there's nothing against that. You I mean, we need farmers. That's just a fact of life. Um, you know, when we moved down, uh, moved, uh, back down to Florida afterwards, um, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of farmers down there. There's, I don't know if you are aware of this, but Florida has more like livestock farm animals per capita than Texas. I mean, it's a lot of farmers down there. Um, and, and you even go down like where we're at now in Columbia, we're in the capital city and I can go, you know, 20, 30 miles outside of the city and there's farmers everywhere. And there's a lot of people here who that's their livelihood. That's what they want to do. That's what their kids want to do. They want to take over the family farm and that's what they want to do. And I, I think it just depends on where you're at. I mean, if you're in Los Angeles, California, you're not going to necessarily find a lot of people who want to be farmers. Or if you're living in Tampa, Florida, you're not going to find a lot of people who want to be farmers or something like that. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I'd be curious. To, and I'm, I guess I wasn't trying to say that there's a lack of farmers now, but I'd be curious to see the percentage as in like percentage, like demographic wise of like, you know, how many farmers are there per capita in the United States today, 2018 versus, you know, 1950, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to bet large sums of money that it's, it's quite a bit of a smaller percentage now. Well, probably because now, I mean, it depends on how you define a farmer though. Like, are we talking just the owner of the farm? Are we talking farm hands or, or what? Because Is anybody involved with the business? Well, I mean, maybe it's bigger than you think because you got to consider there's probably fewer farms now per se than there was back in those you know older times. But they're also bigger, more industrialized farms that need more farm hands. They're also more automated, so maybe not. But you know, back then, you know, back in in the uh, nineteen early nineteen hundreds, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, 
you had a lot more small farms, like family farms, that would be for the community. Whereas now we have these big, huge national industrialized farms that that produce the money, or not the money, <laughs> the food for the entire country, and parts of the entire world. You know, I mean, a lot of our food goes overseas as humanitarian aid. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. I I do think some of the factors that contribute to to, to at least my perspective definitely is the area that I live in. Um, I, I guess for me, like I progressively moved into larger and larger. So I moved from like small, small town to like larger, larger, larger. And I kept getting bigger and bigger because uh, before I lived in LA, I lived in Houston. And before that I lived in Orlando, which, you know, so you could see the de decreasing size of the um, areas that I lived in as far as population numbers. Um, but I, I guess, I, and it was probably my mistake to use farmers as the analogy. It's just sort of like a general term for me to like express of like the numbers of people who are less, are going to be less dependent on technology just by vocation. Um, and there's other occupations out there that, that are less dependent on technology, I'm sure. I'm just not thinking of those off the top of my head. But and I think just the point that I was trying to make is that we're being herded out of these these areas and basically into ghettos, technological ghettos. Um, and and it's not necessarily like a physical ghetto. It's not like a there. Here's the walls. This is it. You know, these are the boundaries you get to play in. And here's your prison cell. That's not what I'm saying. But metaphorically, um, and 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 the reason I say that is because if you look at society today, again, Google. You know, pick pick your article, whatever. People have their noses shoved in their their mobile devices they have their heads in their computers and their and 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 all manner of things and they're always connected and everybody has a social media platform or excuse me a social media um uh what do you call it account i don't even <laughs> I don't even know the right term for that but you know so many people have those things it's and um you know i don't I, i've gotten rid of all of my social media accounts i'm not necessarily trying to like brag or anything they have great because I've done that, but I just feel like that's the trend is we're being herded into these ghettos. And, and again, get by ghetto, I just mean a place where everybody can and be. And um, it's, it's just troubling to me because like, like with the schooling system that we talked about at the beginning, everybody starts to act and look and behave the same way or in similar ways and have similar goals because everybody's hanging out together and everybody has the teachers that are telling them the same, giving them the same information. Everybody's getting the same information from the same sources. So inevitably high number, higher numbers of people are going to come to similar conclusions as to what they want to do for a living, what they want to do, you know, um, you know, and, and that's why, you know, you see so many people as adults going like, man, when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be an artist or I wanted to be an astronaut or I wanted to, you know, I want to be a cowboy or something like that, you know, and then, but when I grew up, I realized that's pretty, you know, that's pretty crazy. Nah, I could have done that. It's like, well, sure you could have, you could have done any of those things. You know, you just bought into the, what you were told, what the information is that you had in front of you, you bought into it, whether it was true or not, you believed it, you know? So, um, and that's what, that's what essentially like the social media platforms are doing now is like, you know, we're all getting the same information, getting recycled, recycled, recycled and put through, uh, you know, a blender. And it's, I think you used the term echo chamber before. 
it becomes an echo chamber and everybody who's doing the same things everybody suddenly it, people's goals aren't necessarily even career based they're like i want to have like 50,000 followers on my social media i want to have 100,000 followers on my youtube everybody you know wants all these young kids you want to do that kind of stuff that's the that's the new career goals is to have something have a platform like that you know that's like sort of like what's in vogue and it's it, it it's a little bit scary to me you know because it's like it's so superficial i mean so many of the things like the whole point of social media is superficiality you're you know you have a profile that you know shows your best side with your selfies and um you know, videos that are shot from the best angles with the best lighting and everybody you know wants to have that stuff and you know you know, talk about the, the makeup tutorials and you know, talk about like you know how you can dress better i've got my blog that shows like how you can dress you know dress in better ways and have like and 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 collect more stuff that you don't need consumer mindset you know i feel like it's all leading into that stuff like just consume consume echo chamber echo chamber you know everybody and everybody wants the same thing because it's more integrated now everything's more integrated yeah, which I mean, honestly, I know I don't think you planned it this way, but that actually kind of ties in with the the second half of that original article we were talking about with the uh, the homeschool kids and stuff. It it talks about um, uh, this 1950s psychologist named Solomon Ash, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He's a uh, Polish psychologist, and he did a series of experiments back then um, to test the dangers of group influence and. Uh, it says, according to the article, it says, when presented with a simple problem that 95% of individuals, I'm sorry, when presented with a simple problem, 95% of individuals could answer correctly. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, when they were not being influenced by the group, but when they were in a group answering the same question, that 95% number dropped to 75% because people were, they were conforming to the group the group mentality or group think, if you want to call You're it. You're seeing that. other people's answers and going, oh, that must be right without really giving it true thought. Right. And so, so then part it, of the, <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly right. And then it goes into uh, a study um, by a neuroscientist named Gregory Burns. It was a study done in 2005 um, where he did the same exact kind of thing that, uh, that Ash had done before, but he did it with uh, brain scans at the same time to kind of tell how the brain was, was reacting to those same scenarios. And what he found was, um, oh, there's a quote here from, from the experiments, uh, is our quote from Susan Cain. Um, uh, never mind, that was the wrong quote, sorry. Basically what he found was that, uh, that the people who decided to still answer correctly, what they knew was correct, even though it was opposed to what the group, the group had said that was incorrect, that there was, um, you know, within the brain that there were parts of it that were going off that had to do with stress and anxiety because they were going against the grain of what was supposed to be, you know, the socializing aspect of it. Um, the hurting as you would call it. Um, anyways, it's, it's a fascinating read. So anyone, I, you know, I'll have this in the show notes too, but you guys should go and read it. It also talks about, and, uh, they've done like 133 of these ash type studies in 17 different countries. And it talks about the results of them and everything like that, but it all kind of goes in with conformity and, and I think as you become an adult, you still have those basic instincts and those basic, you know, basic responses to things. Um, I'm I, the only thing I really struggle with is the idea of it's, uh, you know, the connection to technology as far as it. Are you saying that it's technology is being used to manipulate and control, or are you talking about like it's just a part of human nature? 
I think it's a natural byproduct of the technology we use. I don't necessarily think it's like nefariously being used to control uh, anyone. Okay. I don't think that there's like some powerful power structure back there going like, yeah, hey, control everybody through the technology. No, I think it's a natural product of becoming, and that's why I'm using the term integrate integration with, you know, so we're integrating society with technology. And I, and, and integration by its very definition just means to become one um, and, uh, you know, come together and become one. Uh, and that's what happened. And, and I think part of, what, that's what social media is doing too, is because it, it's creating even an even greater herd mentality. Because isn't that the true example of herd mentality? Is like, well, if everybody else is, if if a high percentage of people is believes a certain way, then it's probably right. You know, like that's what it herd, That's what it is. You know, like uh, that's a very simple, simplistic definition. But that's you know, if I'm part of the herd, I'm going to be like, well, yeah, everybody else is doing it, so it must be the right way to go. I'm going to go ahead and follow them. Yeah. And not really think too much about what, you know, the right thing really is, you know, and that's what it is. And, and, and part of that is peer pressure. Part of that is just, you know, being lazy. There's a, there's def- definitely different parts that come together to make something like that happen. And I don't think there's any one way that people think um, that creates that problem, because I do think some people are going to be responding more on one hand to maybe peer pressure. Like, I just don't want to, you know, have the stress of being different than everybody else because what is everybody going to think of me while other people are just being lazy you know like going like ah everybody else is probably right so you might as well uh go with that and i'm sure there's others who are thinking at it uh, from a different angle too from different angles that i haven't even thought of but the point being that all of these roads lead to rome so technology just by its very nature and integration into society is leading to a greater uh, uh, herd mentality, a greater uh, integration. And I think that's, that's the disturbing part to me, you know, so like the more and the more and more people think alike, the less, you know, creativity there is the less true creativity there is. I mean, have you listened to music lately? And just in general, any music, it all sounds the same. And I'm not trying to like, you know, pick on anybody. I'm not trying to pick on musicians or anything. But everybody's listening to the same stuff and saying, this is cool. Everybody likes to hear it. So I'm going to make more music just like that. Maybe with my own little twist on it. But, you know, this is what people like. So this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I like weird music, though. And, and I'm also old. I've recognized that I'm old. I'm, I'm in that old man stage now to where, like, I just like what I liked, like, 10 years ago. <laughs> and so I just kind of listen to that stuff. But, you know, like, um, I'm actually, it's, you know, speaking of music, this is kind of a tangent side note. But um, I've been really getting into this uh I, it's not chiptune. It's like this new genre that I discovered. It's not probably not new, but it's new to me. It's called uh, uh, synthwave, and it's really good. It's mostly instrumental stuff, but it's. I think I played a song of it for you previously. But uh, anyways, if you're into good music, check that out. I'll have a link in the show notes to some guys. But yeah, um, but yeah, no, yeah, a lot of music that today seems like it. Um, I remember hearing that same argument from my parents, you know, ten, fifteen years ago though. So I don't. I kind of wonder if it's that everything is being it's conformity or if it's just like because music 10 15 years ago didn't all sound the same like their genre sounded the same because genres are supposed to sound similar you know like um queens of the stone well, yeah, is not yeah, sound all that similar from the foo fighters yeah that's the that's the illustration i'm not saying country music sounds the same as hip-hop oh i think what country I'm music sounds the same as every genre, country song yeah I'm, what i'm saying is that within each genre um and there's even sub-genres now that mute the music is very hard 
like I listen to all kinds of music at work because I sit at my desk and design stuff all day. So I'm listening to music and some, there's times and it's new music where I'm going like, uh, did I just hear that or something? But it's a completely different song, but it has a very similar, um, you know, pattern to it and whatnot. And I'm very musically inclined, so I can detect that stuff. I mean, I played, you know, instruments, you know, as I was growing up all the way through high school, you know, could re read music very well and understand music theory. So, I'm, you know, don't for anybody out there who thinks that I don't know what music is or anything about it, I do. And I can detect patterns very easily in notes and all that stuff. So um, and, and yeah. it's I just what it is like. It, it's very similar. And go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, for anyone, any doubters, I remember one time, I think we were up on Cape Cod visiting your family and uh, and you picked up a guitar and you hadn't played it before and you just picked it up and started playing a song. And I was like, I've been playing for three years and I can't play that well. So, you know, yeah, Chris knows what he's talking about when it comes to music stuff. I mean, I, I like music. I've listened to a lot of music. Like, I have a good ear for music when it comes to, you know, like, you remember that movie Seen It or that game Seen It where like they play like a clip from a movie and you have to guess what it was? Vaguely. It was an older game. They haven't done it in a while. They had a, a music variant called Heard It, where it's like they would play like bits of the. There's an old game for those similar to it, but they play like a part of a song, um, or they'd show like a deconstructed album art, and you have to guess. Like I remember always doing really well on those, but but yeah, I mean, like so we know what we're talking about with music stuff. It's just, uh, yeah, it seems like a lot of the stuff nowadays. I, I feel like maybe that started back around 2006 or seven. Um, I remember there was a number. There were a few beats um, that were prevalent in a lot, of, a lot of songs back then that are still like kind of the, the, the norm the standard today exactly um, it, let yeah. me use it and let me use another example just for illustrative purposes because i'm a designer so i can you know i'll share this cars and you you always have uh you know remember your your parents or grandparents going all the cars today look the same you know and that's like 15 20 years ago when you were a kid and you're like nah, i know all the differences between the cars but the point isn't that the cars look the same because you don't know what they are for at least from my from my view, the point is that they're using very very similar design elements because that's what is looking good. So, so to to give a point, um, you know, and for those of you who are familiar with cars, you might get this easier than me, but a lot of cars use what um, now is like is is a trapezo trapezoidal form for the grill. So they have these trapezoidal grills, and a trapezoid is basically like a I'll make it with my I don't know if I can make it with my hands, but it's a Imagine there's a flat, like this is the triangle. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, uh, a, a rectangle with slanted edges. Okay, so like a triangle with the top cut off of it. So you pick a car, and a car brand, and they all have these grills now. It's a trapezoidal grill. It's bigger on top and big, smaller on the bottom, or vice versa. Um, and whereas you know maybe five, ten, five, five or ten years ago, we didn't see hardly any of those. I think maybe Audi had it and that was it. So I'm using that example because I'm a designer and I can recognize patterns in design as well. And I'm not necessarily an old fogey just going, oh, all cars look the same. They do look the same because they're using similar design cues with little different, you know, sort of little different frills and here and there and, and whatnot, little, little quirks, but to each brand. But they're all designing the same thing out there. You got the slanted headlights. You know, with the trapezoidal grill, big giant trapezoidal grill and a huge logo on it now on the front and, you know, sloped windshields, even the SUVs. Um, there's nothing boxy anymore. OK, like nobody's going to buy that because that's what everybody's making. That's successful. You know, so I and and again, to, to, to bring that back home, because we've used the example of 
of design in cars and we've used music sounding the same. That's sort of like that's things are becoming more. That's just there to illustrate that things are becoming more and more integrated. Um, and I think, again, it's just that sort of like echo chamber type of thing. It's like everybody's hearing themselves. Oh, that sounds great. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is great. Let's let's do it this way because it just keeps on working, you know. So um, and and I just and I just see that to that pattern continuing and in fact intensifying. And that's what's concerning to me. And it has been intensifying um, over long, a long period of time. So we're sort of seeing like a uh, um, what do you call it? A culmination of, of things um, because society is changing so much more rapidly than it did even you know 20 years ago. Um, you can see the speed of life you know everything's speeding up you know from the turn of the turn of the 20th century even you can see how fast life speeds up the amount of information that's shared um you know so everything is just speeding up it's going to continue to do that until it's just at a more and more frenetic pace um and people are just going to keep you know sounding more and more similar i'm afraid um and it's going to come down and and i think where this is headed isn't just necessarily vocational but i think it's i think where i the thing that scares me the most is is belief centers so like um, religion um thought like thought processes um psychological thought processes that's what's the scariest part because um you know the bible says that you know in the last days there's going to be one world religion right um and you know i don't i don't know why i'm going here but i feel like the only way to that is that you continue honing and honing and honing and honing until everything comes together and makes more sense. Um, I, I just that's what I that's where I see it headed because so so much so often now with like these like with Twitter and these these different uh, memes that are going around with like race race wars and like uh, you know the Me Too stuff and everything everybody's sort of like getting into that echo chamber and wanting to be a part of it. That's that's the thought processes, I guess. What, is, what would you call it, Dan? Would um, uh, like psychological thought processes? It's like the psychosis behind it, I guess. Everybody wants to be a part of that. Um, think. Those movements to be group part think. of it. Well, they they want to be, but that's I mean that's what it manifests in. It manifests in groupthink. I give, I know what you're saying, but and, and, you know the thing is, is that the media when we when we watch the news and we we read articles and we're focused on what is being presented to us, it can skew our perspective on it because I know um, the news has been really depressing and aggravating and frankly, it's just kind of pissed me off a lot lately. So I've kind of just taken a break from it. And um, the more I've stepped back from it and the more I've engaged with actual people and that I know people that are in my community that are around, you know, um, like people that I used to work with when I worked day shift and I kind of stick around sometimes after work to get to hang out with them a little bit. Um, the more I realize, Hey, the world is somewhat sane. And I've actually started noticing even people who were further on the fringes on both sides of any particular debate or argument have, there's still the outliers who are just trying to be jerks, but there's also the ones that are like, okay, things are getting a little too extreme here. Um, and I think you may have touched on that in the last week's episode, if I remember correctly. You brought it, maybe you didn't, maybe it was somebody else I was listening to, um, brought up, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was a, a prolific feminist writer, really well-known, really well-respected um, as a, a leader in the feminist movement. Um, and even she was coming down on this whole Me Too movement because it was becoming a witch hunt. 
Um, I forget her name, but I know who you're talking about. And then yeah. they're sort of, she's getting backlash from it, right? Yeah, they're like, you know, tell, saying that she's not. I'm like, she's like one of your most prolific feminist writers and thinkers from the last 50 years. He's like and, one of the people that sort of helped set foundations for that movement. Exactly. And so um, I feel like there there is a pushback with reason and rationale. And and you're right. The Bible does talk about that happening in the end times, so, which is one of the reasons why when I look at end times prophecy, I believe that we are living in the end times, but I don't necessarily think we're as far along as some people may think we are, um, which could be another fun discussion for another time. Um, and I talk about it on, on occasion in my other podcast, but um, I don't know. I, I just think it's interesting. Um, I, I do think it's interesting the way things are going, but in the end, I think it all comes back to um, the purpose of pushing these narratives, the purpose of of the media coming at us with these perspectives of showing us that this is, you know, they're trying to normalize the more extremist behaviors of people in that are in like these kind of movements and stuff like that, which I, don't reflect, they don't reflect the average citizen. They don't reflect the average American. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to normalize it so that when we see it, we think that we're the one that are minority and we need to conform, which is kind of what this article was talking about. You know, it talks about it's hard for someone to speak up then. Um, man, there's so much here. It's, it's getting deeper and deeper. It's really fun to kind of process and think about. But I think also what we end up having to realize is that we're not alone and we're not the only people who are thinking rationally about this. And for everyone who thinks that they are the only one, it, it kind of reminds me of the story of Elijah in the Bible. When he talked, he would, um, after he confronted the prophets of Baal, he was run off into the wilderness because Jezebel, the queen, wanted to kill him because of what, she, what he had done. Um, and as a result... You know, he goes off into the wilderness and he's crying out to God because he's afraid that, you know, he's the only one left. He's the only true prophet of God left who believes and everyone else has fallen away or been killed. And God's like, I've got like thousands more people. You're good. Don't worry about it. I got this covered. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at as as a society of rational individuals is that um, there's a lot more of us out there than we might realize. And we might feel like we're alone because we're we're watching the news, we're, we're reading things on Facebook and on Twitter and on social media and on these news websites, and they all tend to skew a certain direction, but that's not necessarily reflective of the majority, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And 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 I think schools are the perfect breeding ground for that type of, um, I guess, uh, training, if you will, because you got, you know, young children, young people who are in a very developmental process, figuring out very much who they are as individuals, you know, and that's a very difficult time for anybody because, you know, you want to feel comfortable as we said in the beginning. But I think that, you know, as they're, you know, you can get, if you can get people in the earliest stages and develop them and train them essentially to think in a certain way as a group, as a herd, um, and have that type of mentality, then that's going to carry through that type of mentality is going to carry through, um, they're throughout their lives unless there's some sort of an event or some sort of an um like a red pill moment if you will or some sort of an awakening to like hey you know what i don't have to think just like everybody else does um i don't have to believe this stuff just because everybody else is saying it or doing it and or promoting it um and i think that's a really big step in 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 um if, if it's a really big step to take, a very scary step to take, especially if that's what um, you've grown up 
the only thing that only type of uh, social interaction that you've really known growing up is to hey let's be cool let's all hang out together and do nothing and you know i mean because because really like when you're in in high school isn't that what partying is all about you can just hang out and do nothing you go to somebody's house who's probably going to get in trouble the next day from their parents and you know go drink a bunch of stuff that doesn't even taste good and you know get messed up and you know risk getting in trouble risk getting killed in, a, in like a car accident or you there's so many risks but hey everybody else is doing it and we all get to hang out together and talk about things that don't even you know it doesn't even really matter and maybe hey i get to hook up with somebody or whatever and and i mean just just you know talking about that it's just like gosh could you think of like a more more like superficial pointless way to live your life like and continue to do that you know weekend after weekend after weekend but at, that's what a lot of people are getting essentially trained to do, you know, at, from a very young age, because um, that's that's just that's just how it is. So uh, I'll be honest know. with you. I was never exactly invited to a lot of parties in school. So I'm like, I don't I never really had that experience, I guess. But I, I know what you're saying. And I know a lot of people who, who did that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's probably I, I don't know. I feel like the more and more that I analyze the American culture, the American society, even the Western, not even necessarily the American culture and society, which there are aspects that you can appreciate, obviously, but the more I start to realize, like, our level of hedonism is not beneficial to the society as a whole, if that makes sense. Um, no, it's not. It's not. Anytime you're focused on yourself um, and your own gratification, it, it's a it's a very unfulfilling existence it seems like yeah from a from that standpoint if you're focused on yourself and taking care of yourself and your own needs that should be fulfilling right but the strange thing is as as humans and that's part of like i f feel like the human existence and the mystery of who we are and created to be is that taking care of ourselves doesn't it doesn't satisfy us it doesn't leave us with a feeling of like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, this is, this is life. This is how it should be. And maybe it is for a while, but at some point you realize, Hey, you know what? There's, there's more to life. There's got to be more to life than this. And it takes some people a lot longer of a time than it takes other people. You know, some people don't ever realize it, you know, and they, and they, uh, you know, take it to their grave. And, and that's, that's a very unfortunate thing. And some people get it at a much younger age, but, I think that's one of life's great mysteries as to why, you know, taking care of yourself doesn't really make you feel better taking care of your own needs. You know, it's just sort of like putting a bandaid over something. What, what we really need as human beings is true um, love, social interaction or, or, or uh, not social interaction, but like uh, we need to help others. We need to be in a lifestyle where we're looking to help other people benefit more than we're looking to help ourselves benefit. And, and we see a greater purpose in things um, through an over through a creator who made us to be that way um, and, and to serve rather than to be served um, because the person, you know, who lived that life greatest being Jesus was this, you know, labeled himself as the servant of all, you know, that's what he said. He never, he never exalted himself. He never glorified himself. He never made um, a big deal out of himself, even though he could have. And, you know, he could have done all these amazing things being God, but he didn't, you know, and I feel like that's the life style example that we should all be following. I know that the periods of time throughout my life where I've gotten closest to emulating 
that particular lifestyle is where I've actually felt the most fulfilled, uh, the most at peace, the most um, in agreement, so to speak, with my situations and not worried about, um, you know, how much money I was going to make, how much stuff I was going to have, who I was going to impress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all, but I, you know, I feel like that's, you know, rather than being part of the societal norm and trying to serve ourselves and make ourselves feel great. Um, don't you think that's a better way to go? Yeah. I mean, there's a benefit to taking care of yourself. Like sometimes you just got to unplug and have like, for me, I'm an introverted individual. I'm not one of those guys who uses that as an excuse to be antisocial, but I do recognize that when I, especially when I work day shifts at the zoo that, um, I could only take being around people so much and on a busy Saturday when I'm literally around 10,000 people all day long, I had to come home and unwind a little bit before I could continue to be around more people. And so there's an element of that, but you know, as, as Christians, our response should not be to remove ourselves and seek our own, you, you kept using the word needs. I don't know if I would use the word, I think I would use the word desires or wants. Um, I think it might be a better descriptor for it. Um, for instance, like, I want a Nintendo Switch, because I like to play video games, and the Switch is pretty cool, and I don't need to spend $300, though, so it's something that I would like to have. Um, I could go and spend that $300 on that, or I could take that $300 and help a friend who maybe is trying to raise support to go over to Africa. Whether, you know, for a short-term mission trip or long-term mission trip or even just for, you know, a, a trip they've always wanted to take but they can't afford it, you know, so I could do that. Um, or I could use that $300 to buy some new clothes for my kids, so something like that. So, you know, I think of a need more as, okay, I need to unwind after being around 10,000 people for the last eight hours. Um, otherwise, I'm probably going to be kind of short-tempered with my kids and with anyone who comes over. Um, but also, as believers, our recognition should be that our dependence is on God himself. And so while I need to unwind, so I'm not short-tempered, I don't need to be beholden to my natural self and my natural state of being ill-tempered after being around that many people for that long. And so then that come is then incumbent upon me as a believer to say, okay, Jesus, I need your help because I can't do this in my own flesh and my own natural disposition. So I need you to help me. And that's when the Holy Spirit kicks in. Um, that's a theological perspective of mine, but um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do nice things. Like we want to take a vacation out of the Grand Canyon sometimes or sometime. That's, that's not a need. That's a want. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to do that. Um, but a lot of times our culture does put such an emphasis on fulfilling your needs and your wants to where it's at the detriment of others, which is why... You know, we see people who, um, I can't remember the example, but, you know, you see somebody who's maybe looking a little down or frustrated or, or just kind of upset about something. And how many times have we done this where we just, we see that and we just look down or we look away or we look at our phone because we don't want to deal with it. And so rather than taking the time to say, hey, man, you doing okay? You know, can, can I do anything to help you out? Um, we just walk on by because we don't want to hassle with it. And that's, I think, a good simple way to look at it to where we can all relate to it because if we're honest i think most of us if not all of us have at some point in time done that um because that person's weird or they they smell funny 
or I'm busy and I just don't feel like dealing with it, or I'm ill-tempered because I've been around 10,000 people today, so I don't want to deal with it. And that's one of those things where, yeah, it'd be better for us. It'd be better for them. It would be better for us, our entire society if we would be more like that, um, which is a Christ-like attitude. But I also feel like, um, I also feel like we can go to. There's a balance. You don't want to go to one extreme or the other. You don't want to give of yourself so much to where there's nothing left to give. But you also don't want to give to the the communal side of things. You don't want to, you know, the uh, collectivist mentality of the individual doesn't matter because the individual does matter. And I feel like it's a very, it can become a very um, irresponsible way to look at, at human existence to say that the individual does not matter the collective matters. That's how you end up having individuals getting trampled and the rights being taken away from individuals, if that makes sense. Whereas everyone else, when, when everybody has illicit rights that belong to everybody as, as individuals, that builds a stronger collective, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, well, looking at Christ's life as an example, he was all about the individual, that the individual matters. He never really, he actually shied away from crowds too. So, I mean, we look at like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, when he spoke before the 5,000 and et cetera, you would always sort of like take off from those places and just hang out with the disciples or he'd end up, and he'd end up, you know, healing individuals or, you know, speaking with individuals. The, you know, the woman at the well comes to mind where he just, you know, stopped and talked to this woman who's at a well, right? You know, and had, and had he had such a tremendous impact on her life that, you know, she went back into the town where people thought she was like this, you know, kind of... Um, promiscuous woman and weird um and she was like hey you know she went to tell them so uh, yeah i think that the, the christ-like lifestyle is all about the individual it's all about celebrating the individual um and not necessarily at the cost of like yourself but i think it's more about um not letting your thoughts center on your, uh, on yourself at least not for too long um, because what ends up happening is if you become too introspective and you become you know so thoughtful about that you end up getting wrapped up in your problems because we all have real problems. But as we know, the best way to, you know, medicate problems is to become distracted from them. And there's better distractions. Some distractions are um, better and more helpful, as you were saying, than others. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've done in the past to sort of self-medicate whenever I, um, whenever I've been stressed out about things and I want to get away from people is like, I end up shopping. You know, I'll buy something online. I'll be like, oh, let me get that thing that I've been thinking about for a while that I felt like I needed, you know, and then you end up getting, you know, it, you go on Amazon, you buy it. And, you know, two two days later, it shows up on your doorstep and you're like, oh, yeah, I feel so great. I got this thing. And, and then, you know, but then you end up back at that same spot of like, it didn't really change my life how I thought it was going to change my life, you know, or if I had this house you know, it would change my life. If I had this car, it would change my life. If I had this woman, it would change my life. If I had this job, it would change my life. And we keep going from thing to thing to thing that we feel like is going to help us when the real thing that's going to help us is, is, is not us and taking care of us in the sense of like, I need to get this stuff. I need to acquire this stuff for myself, but I need to actually give and help and, um, you know, where I can and uh, keep my mind, um, my thoughts away from myself more towards God and more, more uh, in that direction um, than, than on myself. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, 
I don't know what to add to that. But yeah, that's good stuff. Um, not to cut it off, but this episode's getting a bit long on the long side. And you threw a link my way a, little, a while ago. That I thought maybe we could, uh, if you want to touch on, uh, it's a little Seth Rich news. So um, for anyone who's not aware of the Seth Rich situation, I would say go back to like, what was it, like episode two, three, four, something like that. I can't, It was one of the early episodes. And we talked a bit about Seth Rich. Um, he was a DNC staffer during the election. Six. Capital cover-up. Capital cover-up. Thank you. Yes. So what you said that was six? Episode six. Okay. So go check out episode six. It's uh, capital cover-up. It was about the conspiracy of Seth Rich's murder. Um, so it was one of those situations, just to kind of brief recap, if you want more in-depth coverage of it from our angle, you can go and, uh, and check out that episode. But... Uh, he was a DNC staffer during the the election last year. He um, was so he's part of the Democratic National Committee, but he uh, was a Bernie supporter, and um, I believe he was an IT guy, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was working with computers. Like the head and, of their IT, I think. Okay, maybe he was the head of IT. So, anyways, he he acquired access to DNC emails. I think between like the Hillary Clinton campaign and maybe Debbie Wasserman Schultz or some other people, um, talking about how the the DNC was basically screwing Bernie Sanders out of. Uh, opportunities for the nomination and he was a Bernie fan he got pissed off about it and so the, the theory is is that he uh, leaked the information to WikiLeaks he leaked, he's they so people talk about the Russian hacker hacking of the DNC emails um, which you know technically the evidence points otherwise but I'm not gonna get into all that right now um, the, the the primary story the cover-up story as we would say is that the uh, the Russians hacked the DNC, stole the emails, and released them through WikiLeaks. Um, the other perspective is that they were released, they were leaked to WikiLeaks by Seth Rich um, because he was frustrated with what they were doing because of the way they were rigging the primary elections, and um, because of that he was killed. He was shot in D.C. I believe he was on his way to the Capitol uh, to testify against Hillary Clinton um, before Congress. And he was killed in a mugging gone wrong, is the official story, and uh, in which he was shot twice in the back. Uh, did not have, or they didn't take his wallet. They didn't take any of his money. Didn't take his watch that he was like his smartwatch he was wearing or something like that. Um, basically, everything that would have been worth mugging or worth taking from somebody who was mugged uh, was left on his body. And so, um, apparently, there's some news regarding it. So, Chris, take it away. Let us know what the news is. Yeah, and to add to the suspicion of the mugging that you just mentioned where apparently he was mugged for no reason yet none of his stuff was taken he was actually mugged outside of a um a establishment like a bar basically and there was videotape footage of it um i use the term videotape loosely it might have been digital video footage but um somebody you know uh some independent investigators thought you know it might be a good idea to talk to the owner of that establishment to see if there's any see what's up with that and when they did talk to the owner of that establishment, he said that the FBI or some organization showed up and basically confiscated the video information. Uh, so in other words, like all of the recording of that day or that night when it happened. So that's not suspicious at all, is it? Uh, I don't think so. Nah. And uh, so the latest news is in relation to, um, I don't know if you guys are going to be familiar with this guy or not. Um, he goes by the the uh, uh, screen name Kim.com on Twitter. Um, he's sort of like a tech guy. Uh, he's from New Zealand. Um, let me see here. 
pull it up. He's a, yeah, he's like a tech. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, a New Zealand entrepreneur who, and they, basically, he made all these uh, assertions and claims that he knew um, before uh, all of the hacked emails, hacking emails stuff came out that it wasn't hacking, that it was actually a person, and that he knew because he knew Seth Rich personally. Um, so the interesting thing is, is that um, Robert Miller is the uh, the person who's in charge of the investigation for the uh, DNC uh, leaks, and he's basically sticking to the uh, published story as far as um, this is what we're looking for um, in terms of crime, which is that the Russians hacked um, the United States. And of course, uh, the Russian hacking was um, sort of uh, put forth by a cybersecurity firm named CrowdStrike, um, basically who published a, a paper essentially with no information at all. I remember reading this. It was like an eight-page document. And there was essentially no evidence directly pointing towards Russia or anything other than that um, some Russian, um, I believe, keystrokes were used, or Russian alphabet was used in some of the uh, um, some of the purported malware, essentially that they said was had to do with it. Even though there was no evidence, con excuse me, connecting the malware with the DNC um, event. So oddly enough, there was like two two different um, disconnects there. We've got, you know, that just having Russian keystrokes in, a, in malware does not incriminate Russians, number one. And number two, uh, disconnect is that um, there was no malware that was detected essentially in, in the, for these DNC, the DNC event, because none was used, because it was downloaded. <laughs> the information was downloaded and put onto a zip drive or a flash drive <coughs> and taken. There was no, that's why there was no evidence of a hacking. In fact, uh, CrowdStrike later on, they um, retracted some of those claims that they made about um, the Russian hacking. So, but apparently um, Robert Miller didn't get that memo because he's still continuing to investigate the Russia, as, uh, um, the Russia aspect of this. Um, but I'm just gonna um, share with you guys a couple tweets that Kim.com had uh, has shared within about the last couple months. Uh, because I think they're important. Let's see here. I don't know if that's big enough to be able to see. Let me change the window size. Is that any better? That might be better. Okay, that looks like it's better. Um, Kim.com, in one of his tweets, this is dated February 18th this year, 2018. He says, let me assure you the DNC hack was not even a hack. It was an insider with a memory stick. I know this because I know who did it and why. Special counsel... Special counsel Mueller is not interested in my evidence. My lawyers wrote to him twice. He never replied. 360 pounds. Apparently he's a heavy guy. So he's reached out evidently, if we can infer from this tweet, he's reached out to the Miller investigation saying that he has information to share and they will not reply to him. Um, and here's he March 1st, so this is just two days ago, he wrote, reminder, here's the first letter my lawyers wrote to special counsel Mueller regarding Seth Rich. We never received any reply. It's astonishing considering my firsthand knowledge of the DNC leak. Um, and here's the link to that letter. I, um, May, May 20th, so this is right after, May 20th, 2017, this tweet is dated. And that's right after um, the leaks happened. I knew Seth Rich. 
I know he was the WikiLeaks source. I was involved. So we have this gentleman who's sharing this information, basically saying he has information regarding, <coughs> excuse me, Seth Rich. And yet we're, we're not getting any, he's not getting any type of a response from the investigation that is handling, the investigators, excuse me, that are handling um, the event. So uh, to add that on top of the missing uh, footage, uh, the missing security cam footage uh, from outside the venue where Seth Rich was uh, allegedly killed, um, allegedly mugged. There's, it's just, it's just really um, a kind of a smoking gun in my opinion, and it just reeks of uh, some sort of cover up. And I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that you know that I know all of the information or that even you know some of the people who's uh, in, you know, the Twitter that I've shared here, uh, Kim.com. I'm not saying that he even knows all the information or what he's sharing is even true. Uh, but what I am saying is the information, um, it seems that there's information being withheld uh, from the public. And why? Why is that happening? Um, anytime information is being withheld, to me, that's just the giant red herring. Um, uh, and it's just concerning. So to me, why would they want to hide any additional information from this investigation? It would be because you want people to continue to believe the cover story. You want to keep the investigation going in the direction you already have it, which is the Russia investigation. The Russians did it. The Russians hacked. Um, so that's just, uh, I don't know. Like I said, like I said, I'm not claiming to know what happened? I don't know the all of the information, but it just reeks of uh, conspiracy, really, with every, all the with the information that that's out there. Yeah, I mean, I have a very low view of of this investigation, anyways. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I feel like nobody wants to admit the level of corruption within both parties, really, but in this particular instance, the Democratic Party, and I mean, it's. The implications there are scary if you think about it. And, you know, I feel like the Mueller investigation has turned up some really good evidence, you know, as far as the motive behind any kind of Russian interference, which it wasn't really interference so much as it was, um, I guess maybe you could say it was interference, but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't like collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. You know, it was, it's more of a, um, I think he even said in a recent thing that they were just trying to so discord if that makes sense it wouldn't it be foolish to believe in fact it is foolish to believe that our own government doesn't do that in other with other countries abroad they do i mean was... and, and it's just hypocritical for for some something like that to be called out in the first place um and i don't and i am by no means condoning the actions you know of the people who are involved with this because i think it's it's super corrupt like you're saying both, on both sides, both both parties, I am not going. I'm not up here like shilling for any particular party or any particular side, other than like let's just get the truth. I just want to know the truth. You know, uh, as a as a citizen of this country, I we deserve to know the truth behind this investigation. What one way or the other, what whatever it proves to be true, I want to know the truth. And it just doesn't seem like this Russian. Uh, 
uh, investigation is is necessarily exposing all of the truth. Um, you have you have um, what were those two FBI staffers that got in trouble for like basically having those texts where they, um, you know, the, the texts that they didn't have um, that were deleted and found again um, that were super incriminating. I mean, what, some of the text messages that they shot between each other was that this whole Russian investigation was a sham. This is FBI agents. These are FBI agents, you know, saying this FBI assets or whatever saying this, you know, in their private text messages. So things like this getting uncovered. And then you have the ridiculousness, uh, just the hubris of the mainstream media. I think it was CNN went to some lady's house, some old lady's house. Um, and basically like, you know, she did not know they were coming. And it was one of these like, you know, <coughs> hardball reporters just showed up knocked on the door and had her come out so he could basically like uh, essentially have a, you know, point fingers at her that she was a Russian bot and she was helping Russian collusion or she was helping the Russians to, to meddle with the election. And she's like, you know, completely like, what are you talking about? You know, I just have a, <coughs> I just have a Facebook and I'm doing my thing, you know, I'm not helping anybody out. Yeah, <coughs> so that's just the absurdity of it all. Well, and that's one of the things that I find to be an issue. Like, first of all, that reporter, lucky didn't come to my house, <laughs> okay? Because I would have, I would have given him a few good sound bites, if you know what I mean. But I mean, it's like one, you don't just show up. A reporter should know better than just show up somebody's house and start accusing them of stuff like that. Yeah, that happens in South Carolina. Probably gonna get shot or told very, very directly to leave. You know, but I, I don't like the direction this is going because now we're getting to a point to where. If we don't agree with the agenda or we don't agree with the particular narrative that's being sown, then we are being labeled as um, the I can't I can't really think of what it's called a label, but it's more of like if you don't agree with me, you don't agree with the official story, then you are helping you're, you're aiding and abetting the enemy, if that makes sense. I mean, it's not that far of a cry from the old the uh, Alien Sedition Act from John Adams administration, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, basically you say, any th- what's that? And the red scare too. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're totally in a McCarthyist era right now. Um, I mean, the Russians are not, they're not good. You know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and defend what the Russians are doing, especially if you get into any of the stuff written by, um, Alexander Dugan, like he's got a book called the fourth political theory and neo-Eurasianism. Both of them are, you know, I'd recommend you read them if you haven't already. Um, but he's not a good guy. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, these Russian, you know, hackers, if you want to call them that, or I can't remember the name of the company. There was a company that was just outed as being part of this whole process. It was it was in the, the Mueller indictment, actually. Um, but that guy is kind of like the, the, like the philosophical thought behind it comes from him. And it's this whole idea of sowing, sowing discord because it, it's trying to, you know, demolish Western society, Western civilization, as we know it. Um, so by no means am I saying that what they're doing is good, but there's like this, this Russian hysteria that's, that's sweeping across our country where everything is the Russians. Like, and, and it's not new. I mean, like, you know, five years ago, everything was China. China's doing this, China's doing that, China's doing this and that. And now it's Russia, 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 Russia. You know, give it another year and a half, maybe it'll be North Korea. You know, it's we have our boogeymen that we we focus on the entire time. But um, I feel like because there is so much access now, 
that it's not as concealed as it once was. And because there's so many outlets covering it so often now, uh, and you have independent, you know, I'm not going to call this independent news, but you have independent um, broadcasters, if you will, like ourselves, and many other podcasts that are out there that are covering these kind of things, um, giving a more rational approach to it rather than just saying Russia, 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 Russia. Um, people are starting to, to wake up and, and see the way that it's being used and being spun by the media, by the governments, by um, people who have a vested interest in that being the official narrative. I honestly think it's it's a straw man. And, and and that's been apparent almost from day one. It's it's more to serve as a distraction from, you know, from other things that are of great import than it is anything else. I mean, it's it's let's just sit around in a circle and you know, and that's that's because why else would would you continue to beat a dead horse, right? I mean, if it's if you're still haven't turned up, you know, any type of. Uh, you know, any type of evidence after, you know, the amount of time that they've gotten any type of real evidence, like real damning evidence, you know, like let's, let's move on. But, um, you know, I guess the investigation has to be pretty thorough. Um, and, and, and I'm not faulting them for that because that's, uh, that's very important. And I think that, you know, in order to get justice, um, properly that it, it does have to be thorough. So I'm definitely not faulting them for taking their time on it either, but, at the same time, let's explore. Why can't we explore all avenues, all possible avenues, no matter how crazy they might seem? Again, I'm going to bring it back to this uh, to this guy, Kim.com. You've got somebody publicly coming out with um, information that they say that they have, that they're they want to share as part of the investigation, um, which I think in a you know fair in a fair world it should be. You know, if, even if it <laughs> sounds crazy or is crazy. You gotta you gotta cover your bases if, if you're gonna do it, and it doesn't appear that the Miller investigation is covering its bases completely. In this case, if if they're not even responding to this this gentleman's um, letters uh, claiming to have information and and evidence of uh, of um, this uh, DNC event and how it took place, so um, and there's a and there's a big difference as as he says between an actual hack. Um, which is, uh, um, you know, you could probably define better than I can, Dan, but there's a great deal of difference between an actual hack and a, um, you know, a, a in incident where you take information, download it onto a hard drive and take it from, you know, away from a particular system. So that's, that's a big difference. And if it, if it, if there is any type of evidence that supports that, it needs to be investigated. And it certainly seems like there is evidence to support that, um, uh, some evidence to support that. Um, so, I mean, it's 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 a real cluster, that's for sure. But uh, let's go ahead and, and wrap up. I, I think I, I wanna close with um, sort of bringing this, this show full circle uh, to, to where we started. And that was with Dan talking about uh, groupthink and sort of like the um, the herd mentality that that seems to rear its head in especially in our in our schooling systems. Um, I think you know from my perspective, and I think you know our viewers, you guys can probably relate to this because we've all gone through uh, school. Uh, some of us were homeschooled, some of us were in public school, 
But if you were in, in public school, then you know that there were the different cliques, there were the different um, groups of people that, that got along together. But um, there was, it, at least in my school, I had this experience where there was like, you know, there's sort of like the cool kids, you know, that, that all hang out and they, they, you know, they always ended up going to the parties, you know, the same parties and hanging out and they'd all had, you know, like the same stories to share and, you know, hey, ha ha, let's all like talk about this stuff and laugh because we have all this in common. Um, and I just wanted to refer to that because I, I think that that type of a, a mentality, that sort of herd mentality of like, let's all just come together and be, you know, like be cool and like stroke, stroke each other's ego is, is really, um, it's counterproductive and, you know, to, to, to society and to ourselves as people, I think that what we can really do to move forward with things is to, to be as inclusive as possible, um, in those, in those avenues. And I think we're seeing that in, 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 in a certain shape or form in, in broad, in broad strokes in society these days, but the, uh, with, with, um, you know, sort of like this Me Too movement and um, some of the, uh, um, I guess you could call it like civil rights type movement stuff that's going on right now. Um, uh, Neo-civil rights, I guess you could call it. Um, but I feel like those are very focused and, and that's that's fine. But let's try to come together. Let's find common ground in society other than just trying to um, uh, discredit people that are that we see as being on the other team so to speak um whether it's it's left-wingers you know alt-rights etc um i really think that we need to sort of drop those labels and that that we like to throw around so much because in essence that's not much different of a concept than it is to call you know people of a different race derogatory names in the sense that we're we're and when you're using racism or when someone racially calls somebody a derogatory name because they're of a different race, you're putting they're put well, essentially that's a label that's being put on that person. And in, in the sense of a label being put on a person, that's what happens so oftentimes, um, you know, in school where, you know, somebody's labeled a loser or a nerd or, um, you know, just, you know, a failure, etc. Um, that's what we really need to move past, I think, to to become more unified as a, as a society and stop focusing so much on our differences. Um, but we need to focus on what unifies us. Because yeah, sure, there's we can find plenty of differences in the color of our skin, in um, the accents that we speak with, um, in our our preferences, our political preferences. There's differences galore, um, but. Let's focus more as a society on uh, on our similarities, that what makes us human, because that's where we can find the common ground to really truly move forward and, and make progress. Um, and, and we don't need to, and, and for that to happen, we don't need to have everybody believe, have the exact same belief structure. We don't need to have everybody religiously believe the same way. Um, we don't need to have everybody you know, believe in the same political system or monetary system even. It's not about that. It's about finding common ground in the human condition and being able to move and look past our differences and uh, and and create something that's truly constructive in society. And that's to, to be able to live, to 
live together to coexist and help each other out. Um, so I, I just want to encourage you guys to, to, to help to promote that type of a lifestyle where we move past our differences. Um, it's not about um, political parties. It's not about necessarily belief systems. Um, that's not what it's about. It's not about finding the right team to fit in. We should, I guess, we need to celebrate our differences. We need to celebrate our differences. We're all going to have different ideas and different perspective on things, and that's okay. It's completely okay for you know for that to happen. It's and and I don't need to shut somebody down because they believe differently, and I'm insecure in my because I'm insecure in my viewpoints. Um, so I just really want to encourage you guys to do that. Whoever's watching this video, just 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 believe in yourself. Believe in who you are as an individual, that, that, that God made you great, that God made you different from everybody else, um, not because uh, it, you're weird, but because you are your individual self and you have these amazing, this amazing potential, this amazing creative potential to be whatever you want, to, to do whatever you want, and to help uh, to push uh, society and humanity forward in a constructive way. Here, here. Well said. I have nothing to add to that one. That's good stuff, man. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to talk about tonight? Or should we go ahead and close up? All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap up. It's been a, a longer episode than we usually do when we were planning on. Um, but I feel like it's been a good one. I feel like we had talked about a lot of really good stuff tonight. Um, and, yeah. If you guys are interested in uh, finding more of our shows, you can head over to twowiseguys.org. And you can find all the previous episodes except for last week's, which I'm not... I haven't gotten up yet, so we'll get that soon. Um, but it'll be up before this one comes up on the website. So um, you can go ahead and check that out if you want uh, to listen on the go, which might be more convenient for most people. Uh, you can also go to uh, the Apple iTunes or iOS podcast app or whatever it's called. Um, we're also on all the Android ones too, or at least all the big ones that I'm aware of. Um, we're not on Spotify. I'm not really sure how to make that work, so maybe we'll figure that out sometime. Um, but you can get the podcast. If you are listening to the podcast, if you wouldn't mind, it would be awesome if you could leave us a rating and or review. Um, that would help us move up in the rankings and also just kind of give us some feedback on how we're doing. Um, if you Speaking of feedback, if you want to reach out to us, you can email us um, at twowiseguysorg at gmail.com or you can go to the website and hit the contact button at the top and uh, send us a message that way or you can just leave a message in a, or a comment below. Uh, either on the YouTube video or on the website itself. Um, and if you guys are interested in being part of the show and you know, kind of giving some feedback, submitting questions you want us to discuss, you can reach out the same ways, and uh, we'll be happy to, to get back to you, maybe even bring it up during the show, um, kind of talk about it that way. Um, as always, every single week we do this live on Saturdays at 7.30 Eastern, give or take, maybe a few minutes late sometimes. Um, that's 9.30, or sorry, uh, 4.30 Pacific, my bad. And... Um, you can go to YouTube and check, watch the video live on there and be part of the live chat that we got going on there. Um, occasionally we get a people, somebody comes in there and starts talking and it's always a lot of fun to be able to you know, answer questions on the fly, engage with you guys as you're in there. Um, again, the only rules we have for the show is just have fun, um, have thoughtful discussion, be civil, um, things like that. So, um, I don't really have anything else to add, but I had a lot of fun this week. And Chris, uh, did you have anything you want to add? Ah, it's been a blast. Thanks for watching, guys. Yeah. Until next week, I'm Dan. Chris is over there. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>